What's up, podcast world? Back at you, Chad. Building This Life Ain't For Everybody. Got to start off because I'm excited as we inch closer to the 2019 North American Whitetail Championships. Get over to NAWTC and get signed up. If you're an archery hunter, if you love to pursue whitetail buck deer with your bow and arrow, with your stick and string, with your broadhead, with your traditional, I don't care how you do it, but as long as you like being up in a tree stand or in a ground blind or spotting and stalking, 14 regions across America and Canada, at $300 enters you in for a chance to qualify and win $50,000 cash prize. And remember, as soon as you enter for that $300, you get a prize package valued at well over that with a Gator Coolers, Tumbler Cup, a Tacticam, Broadheads, Peep Sights, tons of stuff to accessorize your bow and get you ready to go in the ring and compete for $50,000 cash prize. Stay safe, stay ethical, keep whitetail hunting with the bow and arrow at the forefront of America. It's the largest format of hunting in the country country white-tailed deer they're everywhere again 14 regions across america and canada and you can become the 2019 north american white-tailed champion fifty thousand dollars cash money brought to you by michael waddell and the bone collector crew as well as wicked outfitters my boy clint walker and steve schmidt oh in the great state of kansas are putting this on and we're excited to be a part of it tell them chad building the banded foul life crew sent you and good luck to all of you today's episode is also brought to you by carbon express arrows you guys if you're looking for the arrows that are going to get you through that hunt this coming fall don't look any further than carbon express we use them religiously here whether we're practicing in the backyard on a 3d a competition or in the mountains of the western united states chasing mule deer antelope rocky mountain elk we depend on carbon express to uh, get get it done for us and as we venture into this archery game more i'm new to it but i know a lot of people out here including both of my brothers that have had a ton of success on a lot of the big game species in the west united states and again carbon express arrows has been there for us and we will continue to support them because they absolutely get the job done and last but not least today's episode episode is brought to you by Gator Coolers, Brian and Mitch McGeehee down there in Louisiana. Thank you so much for the support of our TV show, The Foul Life and This Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. If you guys are looking for a new cooler, a soft-sided backpack cooler, a 10, just a, a small lunchbox style cooler, they got them all, all the way up to 110 quarts on wheels, guys. These ones on wheels, you can drag it through the beach, drag it through the rocks. We use it everywhere we go, whether we're camping, hunting, fishing at the lake, the summertime we strap them to the back of our ski boats they're there for us they retain ice for a long long time they're not saying they reinvented the wheel but they got a cool story a cool brand gator coolers g-a-t-r no o in there gator g-a-t-r coolers.com mitch and brian mcgee from the great state of louisiana thank you again for all of your support again all the way from a 10 quart lunchbox style all the way up to 110 quart on wheel plus their backstack backpack style coolers and their tumbler cups guys get them keep your drink cold or hot whatever you choose to do choose gator coolers and today's episode is brought to you last but not least i got to say one more thing about jargon duck calls check them out at jargongamecalls.com we're very happy with the success and the response so far that's enough said about them i want you to go on there and listen to the sound files listen to the videos on there and just hear the ducks in there guys it's a different format of a call a different theme branding company and we're very proud of it jargon gamecalls.com check out the small talk the loud mouth and the icebreaker new calls launching soon including a short barrel and a competition call and today's guest has been here before and when we visited with mr david wise last time you were getting ready for the u.s open in mammoth california correct 
Oh yeah, Grand Prix, U.S. Grand Prix. Great U.S. Grand Prix. How did it go? How did it fare? Uh, you got canceled the first day, right? Yeah, it was uh, it was a bit of a weather week. Uh, it went good. I landed. I mean, we were competing basically in the middle of a windstorm, so that always adds a challenge. And and uh, sometimes you draw the short straw, sometimes you draw the long straw. I drew the short straw and had a giant gust of wind both runs. Landed in my runs, but not that great. Got like fourth or fifth or seventh or something. Something off the podium, but I was close. I don't think it was seventh. <laughs> it was a ways down. But so you so you just when that happens and it's you it's just the luck of the draw when you get up in the air and that wind gust comes up you it's hard to adjust and land the trick right and the judges you don't get a rewrite if if the wind gust comes up. No, I mean everybody's got the same in somewhat the same weather. Um, so it's part of your, it's part of your skill as an athlete and, or as, you know, between your team, me as an athlete and my coaches picking the right window. Cause they give you about 30 to 30 seconds to a minute of flex time saying you can start your run whenever you want. Obviously once your run has started, it's started. So we try to watch the flag. You try to get a feel for it. Just like a surfer would get a feel for waves. We try to get a feel for how the wind is going to play. And I just made the wrong call and, and, uh, it wasn't necessarily that I was getting blown around by the wind in the, in the air. It was more, uh, speed affected. So I dropped into the half pipe and all my speed was gone. Cause I was just basically staring at a headwind the whole time. And, uh, yeah, so my, my runs were, like I said, I landed them, but I didn't land them as well as I would normally do because I didn't have the speed that I would, would have liked. So, um, that's part of the game. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes you draw the short straw, sometimes you draw the long one. And, uh, that, that just wasn't my day. It's a shame. Cause it's, you know, that's the closest, that's the closest thing to a hometown event that I have these days. Um, that's the closest to Reno, uh, high level competition we have lately. So, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of a disappointment, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't even necessarily call it that. It was more of just like, okay, I got some things to work on going, uh, going forward. It's always, it's always good to, in my opinion, it's almost good to end the season with a little bit of a, not necessarily a low point, but something to work towards. Cause it makes you hungry for the, for the time. I like hearing that. So when you get in, when you get in that position though, David, as, 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 as much experience as you have, as much gold as you've won championships that you've won on every level of this sport, do you know that it's over as soon as you feel that speed decrease? Do you know in your head that, Hey, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm smoked. Or there's no way I'm getting the gold in this because you just don't have the elements in your favor. I, I mean that on that particular day, it, it's rare that we compete in that much wind. Uh, so on that particular day, it really comes down to the judge's decision. I, I wouldn't have been surprised after I landed my second run. I wouldn't have been surprised. If they put me in first or fifth. It's, it's, and it's who knows how those judges feel about how that run looked on that day. I was proud that I landed the run that I landed in the wind like that. Um, but the judges obviously thought that, you know, the wind thing was, was more of a mistake than I thought it was. So, um, that's, that's part of it being a judge sport. So how high were these winds? about i mean what probably, were they probably 25 miles an hour and how high do they need to be for the judges or somebody to say no we're to, not running today yeah it's that was right on the fringe i mean we're we're anything over 30 miles an hour crosswind is is almost impossible to, to run a contest in so we're we were flirting with the line as is like i said we were we were grateful to get the contest off at all because we've been struggling with the weather all week but um and they had a bunch of other events to run too they had snowboard half pipes snowboard slope style ski slope style and everything was weather dependent so um yeah we were lucky to get the contest off at all 
So when you when you say thirty mile an hour winds, it's not constant thirty gust to thirty, or is it thirty no. with gust to fifty or something? Yeah, exactly. Like no, it, I mean that seems crazy. If you hit a gust of fifty, that puts your life in jeopardy, exactly. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why. Um, I mean, we're looking at. I, I don't. It's not like we have a. It's not like we have a, a wind gauge right there that tells us exactly what it is. But I'm just talking. I'm just estimating. If we're if we're having gusts over thirty five over thirty miles an hour, then yeah, we're 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 right on the fringe of having to cancel it or postpone it. And what does it do to the snow? Is it is the snow just so compact and so um, perfectly manicured that it doesn't affect the actual run? It's just that when you're in the air, it affects your judgment, your landing, and the potential for crash when you're yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, in the air? If, if you think about a half pipe, you're taking off on a vertical surface and landing on the same surface, and if you get a gust of wind while you're ten feet off the ground, that can move your body. I mean five feet you know like it's 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 serious so um and especially when you're talking about gusty it, it, it's one thing if the wind is consistent if it's a steady steady wind and and what have what tends to happen in mammoth a lot is the is the steady wind where uh it's just a storm front's coming in and you know it's going to be steady wind and, and that's one thing that you we can kind of predict that you can kind of adjust for it but when it gets really gusty and say you're you know you're boosting out of the half pipe 10 15 feet and you get a major gust of wind it can put you either all the way into the flats in the in the gut of the half pipe or all the way out onto the deck and that's just it just gets super dangerous that way so when you say super dangerous were there any injuries during this competition at the grand prix at mammoth did you see anything happen that day no like i said we were we were flirting with the line but i feel like everybody kind of understood that people weren't going as high as they normally would because of the weather we're, it's, we're, we're responsible for ourselves out there you can take as much risk as you want um but none of us athletes it's it's a long season none of us athletes were out there trying to get hurt so uh, we didn't have any injuries that that day but um yeah it's part of the game so <clears throat> when you say that you're gonna get you know you're hungry for the next season it's it's now may it's going into the you know it's the end of spring going into the summer months are you in the weight room you're training and i don't want to talk about what's going on you know exactly right now we'll get into that in a second but um right after that grand prix and that's the last contest of the year so are you just training nonstop in the weight room in the gym until when when do you would you do you have to go over to japan next or where's the next winter uh event that you're going to be participating what are you going to get ready for yeah, so um, basically Audi 9s for me was the, the last uh, actual scheduled event for the year. And that's not, it wasn't even a competition. It's more of a film and photo thing. Um, but after that wraps up, then it be, kind of becomes uh, pick your poison. It becomes uh, choose your own schedule, do what things you want to do, what things you feel like are important. Um, the, my team right now is down in Mammoth training. Uh, and they'll be training in Mammoth for the next probably a couple of weeks. And Mammoth is actually going to have half pipes running till almost July. So um, there's always places that you can be skiing, especially when we have a, a banger season like we've had out here in the West. Um, but for me personally, I like to kind of wrap things up in May and take a break from the whole skiing grind. So I won't spend nearly as much time in the gym. Um, I won't spend nearly as much time on skis. I'll really take both a mental and physical break from it because your body can only handle uh, being at peak uh, condition for so long and then it has to have a lapse. And the, the thing that you don't wanna do is have that lapse coincide with an injury. So um, personally, I try to sort of wrap the season up strong 
and then take a nice break and do a bunch of things that I haven't been able to do all season long, like ride my mountain bike or go trail running or even spend a bunch of time out in the water fly fishing, flinging arrows with my bow, um, just taking that mental break. So that midsummer or early summer, you know, come June, mid June, early July, I can really get back into the gym and be excited about it again. Cause that break is necessary that the, 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 the level of excitement that you have about pursuing your craft is just as important as being in the gym. You know, you need to be in the gym, but you need to be in the gym. 100%. You can't just be, you can't just be there filling time because then you're not going to be as effective. So, uh, that, that break for me is important. It's, it's good to, it's good to have some balance in your life. So I, I, I love the spring months just because, uh, it gives me time to spend time with my family. I mean, I've been gone, I've been on the road for the last seven months in and out, you know, three weeks at a time. So it's nice to just take some time off and and, and, and when you say time off, when I, t- I text you and was wanting to go to lunch and you said, well, I'm going to be gone for a bit. We're headed to Austria. And, and you, you were taking your whole family to Austria, right? Yeah. Just a, what was this a, a family vacation? Uh, no, was, uh, call it a workcation, if you will. Um, I was there, I was there to ski, but, um, my wife and I have kind of realized, I've realized that, um, I'm not going to compete forever and it's pretty cool, you know, one of the things that one of the lucky things about having had kids young uh, is that I, they get to they get to experience me in, in the peak of my career. Whereas most most dads have to tell their kids about their the, their peak later on. Yeah, I was I was an athlete back then, and uh, my kids get the get the the to experience that right alongside me. So um, my wife and I kind of last year came up with a, we just realized, Hey, we need to, uh, we need to take advantage of this while it lasts and at least have them experience some new place once a year. So last year they went to the Olympics in Korea. They got to go to Asia for oh, the first cool. time. And, uh, so this year I was like, all right, where's our trip going to be? And I realized, Oh man, Austria of all the places that I've been, uh, over and over and over again. It's funny cause I travel a lot, but I spend a lot of time traveling to the same places, uh, Switzerland, Austria, France, um, New Zealand, you know, and, and it's always hitting the same spots every year. Um, but Austria has always been one of my favorites. So I was like, all right, for this year, for 2019, our, our family trip, our family and adventure is going to be Austria. So, um, we went out a little early before the event and spent, spent a little time hiking around, just doing the spring thing over there in Austria, uh, near Kitsteinhorn. And then, um, from there we went to Went over so 10, why, why tell me real quick, why is Austria a favorite? Oh man, it's just like, it's just like why, why I love living in Reno and, and why the Midwest is, uh, has so much draw to me is because the people there are great. Um, there's beauty everywhere in the world. There's beauty. Like th- this planet we have is amazing and you can find beauty almost anywhere you go. But the combination of beautiful mountains, beautiful landscapes, epic uh things to see and hospitality where people treat you like a friend they treat you like um they treat you like they value the fact that you're there is huge i mean i've been i've been to a lot of places where i'm I'm like man this is a beautiful landscape but the people here are kind of douchey and uh i wouldn't say that about austria at all it's it's just one of the most welcoming cultures that i've that i've experienced and what when you say Austria, is it is it kind of um, when, is it fanfare over there that gets you? Like, are you guys like looked at as 
as celebrities when you're in a place where you're doing this kind of a deal? Is it the people that are just take you in as like a like a buddy and you're a, their locals just accept you guys and they treat you like family? What do you mean as far as like the people go? Some people are douchey to where you show up and they don't accept you into a place or they're just arrogant and they don't want you in there. They don't care who you are or what you're there to do. Or what do you mean by the people are awesome in Austria? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the fanfare at all because Austria's even though their national sport is skiing, it's ski racing. They don't care two licks about freestyle skiing over there. They don't care about free skiing hardly at all. Uh, it's growing for sure. Some of my friends, Tom Rich and a couple other guys are, are really pushing, uh, the free skiing scene in Austria. But I would, I would say for the most part, um, they don't care a whole lot. Uh, they don't care a great deal about free skiing, but, um, just the way that they treat you, it, like you said, some people, uh, almost feel slighted by the fact that you're there enjoying their landscape. Some, some cultures just, just discourage foreigners and the Austrian people are like, yeah, we do have the best spot in the world. This is my favorite thing about it. Check it out. And you know, the, the value that they have there for food and uh, doing things well, cooking things, you know, rather than I feel like in America, we almost have a, a we almost have a quantity culture around food. It's like, how much food can you eat? Uh, whereas in some of the European countries, it's all about the quality. They they spend, you know, each meal, especially when you're talking about sitting down for dinner, it's almost always a four course meal. They start with a soup and a salad and then they go to the main and then they, you know, which is what give me what's Austrian fare like um, <clears throat> they have a lot of really good like um, stews and meat meat dishes and stuff for mains. They do things called they like uh Schnitzel is like the, one of the biggest, most famous Austrian things where you take a veal, a veal cutlet, coat it in breading and fry it. Obviously that's going to be delicious. Um, and you know, deep fat fried veal. They fries. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm not going (laughs) to pretend like it's the, it's always the most healthy. Yeah. But it can't uh, taste bad because veal's amazing. It's so good. Um, they do a lot of, uh, it's hard to even describe, um, their pasta dishes over there are just, they're just amazing. Um, I would never think that Austria was known for food. Like, well, I, just, I mean, when I talk about Austria, we're really just talking about German-speaking Europe. So, you know, Bavaria is famous for food. Bavaria, yeah, yeah, the beers there are amazing. The Weiss beers are amazing. So, um, you know, they just take they just take pride in the things that they put into their body over there. And um, are all the people gorgeous? Surprisingly, yes. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know. Not, I don't know. It seems like the ratio is higher over there than it is here, here in the States. And I think that's partly because people take better care of their bodies. There's some, there's some people, there's a lot of fat people here and there's not, some, there's not quite. So I wonder why. I, wonder, I know what you said. It was about the, the, the society here and the culture. And like, I've, I've had this talk with so many people about why it has to be like that. When you go out and if you really study and really people watch and see like the, the epidemic that it really is. And I don't understand if it's a mindset where it's accepted to where, um, it's okay. I'm just going to eat. And this is life. I used to be an athlete. I don't care anymore or whatever. There's, I have the mindset of like, there's no way you can like that. Yeah. There's no way you I can be comfortable. Too. That's how I feel too, man. You know what I'm saying? It's like, did you watch, I don't, I don't know if you like pay attention to country music much. I know you listen to it, but 
on the C on the CMT awards, they had a big actress come out and she sang a song and she's really overweight and she got, you know, was like accepted and they, they gave her the standing ovation and all these other country stars came out on stage and were hugging her while she was crying. And I was all, and I've, and I've said this before, but I'm just like, is that sending the wrong message to somebody to accept it and say, you're accepted by us instead of being like, Hey, we're going to motivate you to change that way. I don't know. It's like, yeah. when you talk about the cultures That's- over there, it's almost do they is it unacceptable like people are like no man that's not acceptable over here let's get we got to get going and they drive people or they push people to to take care of themselves more yeah you know i i don't think that you'll ever encourage somebody to i don't think you'll ever properly encourage somebody to better themselves by by ragging on them right so uh in that sense i somewhat agree with this anti-bullying culture that that schools are really pushing a lot lately and stuff like that where it's like you know what? We can be positive towards people who aren't exactly where they want to be. But at the end of the day, the reason that they're not fat over there is because they have an outdoor culture. They, they live in beautiful places and they embrace that fact. And, um, I mean, we just have so much, we have, we have so many things at our fingertips that are not active that that's where our society is going. So how, you, you how, how easy is it to sit there and look at your phone? I mean, I dude, I can I can get caught up looking at my phone. Yeah, but you can also go to Tahoe. Yeah, You're uh, saying, that's what I'm saying. With our finger t- at, yeah, our, at yeah. our doorsteps is just what Austria has. Might right. not might not be as beautiful, no, but there's no, not many places in the world prettier. It's more than beautiful. Yeah. So yeah, the point I was trying to make is we have both things at our fingertips, but I think people are getting caught up in the wrong thing. People are getting too caught up looking at the screens and not quite one hundred percent not spending quite enough time out there in the outdoor spaces. So that's why I do what I do. That's why I encourage people. That's why I say, hey, get outside, go hunting, go fishing go do things that get you out because you really do have like a good balance of it because your career you're doing the social media thing you're building you're building content and you're doing it but you're doing it in a way to where you're staying active and you would be staying active even if you didn't have to do the content the content has just come with the territory just like what i do i'm gonna be in a duck blind i'm gonna be setting up decoys i'm gonna be running a dog i'm gonna be driving a boat now it's just yeah we do have to have the phones going sometimes because that is the way it's transitioned and evolved from just tv to now more social media and you got YouTube and you got the yep. potential of all these different content providers. So I get it. But the point is, is that you still are outside being active. Your kids and wife are still outside being active. We have a society right here in this general area of 400, 450,000 people. We have a casino based, you know, community that's got buffets and all you can eat. And this is all you can eat and all you can drink in 24 hours and this, and I get it, but there are people that don't fall into that lifestyle because at, if you just go up on the mountains, you can go any direction from this door right here and be in the mountains and be on a four-wheeler or be on a hike or be doing something with your hands and feet and staying active. So there's really no excuse for it. So I'm not saying that shaming, I would never shame somebody. I would rather motivate them. My question to you though, is there a mixed message though when somebody in society goes, I know that way, the way I look and I'm still going to get up here and do my thing. I just don't know if it's sending a mixed message. If we embrace that and say, good for you, it's okay to get that way. Cause I don't see the health benefit in getting that way. I think it's the exact opposite of how you should care for your temple. Not that I'm perfect and neither are you. We drink a beer or a whiskey once in a while. We'll go eat sushi with a lot of sticky rice with a lot of carbohydrates and sugar, but we work out enough to where at least it's not going to overtake us. It's not shaming. It's just, is there a mixed message being sent that if we're accepting of that, 
is it okay to send that message to them that, Hey, you don't have to worry about your body. You can stay like that forever. Cause there's no way it's yeah. comfortable. There's no way it's comfortable. I no. just don't think so. I, I think that people delude themselves into believing that it's comfortable. They're like, Hey, this is how I am. And the reality is changing is extremely uncomfortable, right? Like the change, changing is the hardest thing to do. It's the most, it's the most important thing to do maybe in life. But, um, going from being overweight and eating whatever you want and not forcing yourself to get up and go to the gym, going from that lifestyle, that habit, I mean, essentially what we're talking about here is habits and building healthy habits is hard to do. It's uncomfortable. So sure. It's people would love to just feel okay for not having to do the hard thing. Uh, I have a, I have a seven year old daughter and, and one of the, one of the main points that I, that we're going through lately and I keep driving home is just because it's hard does not mean it's bad. Just because it's difficult does not mean it's going to hurt you. You know, she's learning things and, and she's super talented and things come really easy to her. And when something doesn't come natural to her, she's, she's, real liable to give up on it. Cause she's like, no, nah, that, that's not as easy as this other thing that I'm already good at. Why don't I just do that thing? And I'm like, no, I want you to focus on the difficult things. Cause if you don't ever learn how to overcome difficulties in your life, then you're going to be crippled from this point forward. And I think that that's where we're, well, that's what we're stuck in in society. Dude, how easy is it to come home from a long day at work where you're mentally fried, sit on the couch for a couple hours, watching TV, watching YouTube videos, flipping through your Instagram feed. That's easy. The hard thing to do would be to finish a day at work mentally where you're mentally fried. Like everybody has mental energy and physical energy and the finding the balance between using, saving enough of that mental energy to expend the physical energy. That's a, that's a hard balance to find, especially when you're sitting at a desk all day and you're answering phones or you're corresponding through emails and stuff like that. For me personally, that fries me because I'm an introvert. I, I do the best when I'm out in the mountains by myself or with a small group of people. And so for me, interacting with a bunch of people through email is mentally draining. And so the easiest thing to do after doing that for a couple hours would be to just sit there and veg out. But the most healthy thing to do would be for me to go for a bike ride or go for a little trail run or go, you know, swim in the river for, for 30 minutes, 45 minutes. That's the best thing for me. So finding the courage to dig deep and do those hard things is, is what I'm encouraging. That's what I'm trying to encourage people to do. Like you said, through my channels, uh, through my social media, through the YouTube channel, I'm just trying to encourage that balanced lifestyle. And, and I think people who follow me understand that they're like, he's not going to respond to every single comment because he's out here creating this content and then he's putting the content together. And once that's done, he's going to go out there and spend time with his family like he does in the posts, you know, like it's, it's authentic. So, um, I think that that's what we should strive towards as a, as a society is more balance. And so I'm not saying that everybody needs to be skinny now, but everybody should be, everybody should be progressing. Everybody should be working towards a healthier lifestyle. We should all be working towards eating better food. Let's be real there like you said you and i we both we both have our indulgences but we over we overcome it by working out quite a bit and um but we all need to be eating we need to be putting better things into our body uh the factory lifestyle the 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 easy the the at your fingertips you know highly processed foods we have in this country are are hurting us and we all need to recognize that and just and just uh make a change 
And I think what you're saying is dead on to the way I never want to come across that it's a judgmental uh, deal because all of us have it in our family. We see it up close and personal, you know, on a really personal level on my family. I've seen it a lot to where how it affects people. Um, And I just don't understand why we would ever want to send a mixed message. I think the message Mm -hmm. needs to be that, you know, start living off the land, grow a garden. I'm not saying that everybody has the time to do it, but if you have time to go get a big gulp and a Twinkie, you have time to, to go get something healthier. And it's just about making those better decisions. And it seems to me like with your lifestyle, with as good a shape as you're in and as much as you work out and as much as you compete, you could take this season off probably the next month and eat whatever you want and probably not be affected, but you stay the course because you understand what you're going to get out of your body is, is what you put into the body. It's like a bank account. You can't go make a bunch of withdrawals if you're never making good deposits. And that's what I, that's how I've always looked at is yes, I am going to have my indulgences and go and eat some sushi and go and have a whiskey or a cold beer once in a while. But you, you work out and train because your mindset's there that like, I care about my body enough. I'm not going to say, I'm never going to eat carbs again. I'm going to go on the Atkins diet. I won't do that. I don't think that that's a healthy diet. I think that it's only a lifestyle for a little bit of time. And then as soon as you go back to eating some lasagna or rice, you're going to gain the weight right back. The change becomes a lifestyle. It has mm-hmm. to. It doesn't mean that you can never go back there again and eat pasta or eat the rice or eat, have the whiskey. It just means that in the other, in the interim, you're freaking working your ass off every day yep. to, to sweat and burn calories. The less calories you take in, as opposed to the more you put out, you're going to lose some weight. You're going to tone up. You're going to get a little bit more muscle mass. And you're going to feel And better. you're going to feel so much better. But not just physically, not just your no. joints, your ligaments, your tendons, your muscles, you're going to feel better com- with your confidence and, and going and buying new when clothes your and, your yeah. pi- and when you see pictures of yourself. Yep. And, and I just think that, I don't know, man, I just think it's a weird mixed message. I, I don't even know how we got off on that sidetrack, but <laughs> it's, it's a, a rabbit trail there. Yeah. It's kind of, so you're, you, you, you're over in Austria and you called it a workvation or what'd you call Workation. it? Workation. Yeah. And, and, and so what are you over there working on? Um, well, I had a, I had a, like, uh, an event called Audi nine. So that was, that was the, that was the end of the hit list. Um, and then I was going to do a little bit more filming while I was over there. So, uh, call it a workation because I brought the family along and we did a little vacation on the front end, but I'm also there to work. The reason I was there is, was to, was to go skiing and do some skiing, filming, uh, photo type stuff. And in, on behalf of who? Uh, I mean, I have my own YouTube channel, so I'm always log- logging content for that. But, um, the Audi nines is a, is an event that I've gone to for many years. It's where I set the, it's where I set the world record, uh, on court or on, uh, on hip, uh, years ago. I think that was in 2016. And then, uh, we're just recently, we, we set a new, a new fancy world record, uh, quarter pipe to hip landing. Uh, that was, that was this past or a couple weeks ago now, uh, over there in, in Solden, Austria. So it's, it's, uh, it's a what I, it's hard to even describe for the for the layman, but um, it's a film and photo friendly event. So it's not a contest necessarily. It's not about showing up and and you're on a structure, you're on a schedule. We're having a competition. We're going to film it right here, right now. It's more uh, they try to provide us with the coolest looking, uh, most picturesque feature ever built, and then we as skiers and snowboarders just perform on it all week long and then they capture the, they capture the footage and, uh, and then they launch a, a, a highlight video at, at the end of it. In the meantime, you'll get a bunch of banger photos. You know, if anybody flips to my Instagram, Mr. David wise, um, 
you can look at all the photos from there. I had an awesome week, super good week, man. So what are you doing though? You are, you're, you're dropping in on a speed ramp and then going off just huge vertical jumps, like a quarter pipe jump. Is that what you're doing over there? Yeah. So that, that feature, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a celebration of skiing and snowboarding. So they built a big air jump. They built a giant quarter pipe with a hip landing or with a, with a banked landing where we could go super high safely. Um, they built a couple of different transition features that look like sort of like BMX, BMX jumps where you're, you're jumping from one thing to another. Um, one of the main most picturesque features, which I spent quite a bit of time on was called the launch pad, which was just this giant motocross style, uh, take off. It was only four, four and a half feet wide. So it was real narrow, looked really like aggressive, intimidating. And it was like a 90 foot clearance from, from takeoff to, to knuckle. Uh, so it's just huge. Looks good. You know, when the sun pops, man, that feature looks amazing. So we, yeah, essentially they give you, I almost get every time I go there for that event, I almost get ADD cause I'm like, Oh, I want to hit that big jump. Cause I don't get to spend a lot of time outside the pipe. Uh, outside the half pipe during the the normal ski season because the the contest grind that's if I'm being real with myself I'm being if I'm being real with you guys that's where I make my money is in the half pipe and so um, I don't get to spend as much time on big jumps as I would probably like or as much as I did when I was younger so uh, I always get ADD because I'm like well there's a there's a quarter pipe feature which I was obviously uh, caters to me as a half pipe rider but um, there's also these big jumps and the landings are all perfectly manicured um, if you, when you're when you're building if you're a if you're a, a high class jump builder uh matching the that pitch of the landing to the pitch of the takeoff uh is one of the best skills that you can have and having a steep landing where it feels like you're not even i mean those jumps over there they're some of the biggest jumps i've ever hit and the landing feels like you just took off on a five how foot big jump. how big uh i think the 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 so there was the launch pad jump like i said it was uh take off to knuckles 90 feet um and then the standard big air jump was 70 feet but um, 70 feet gap or 70 feet high ramp or what do you say no no 70 feet, feet from so like the from, from where i leave the grant the ground to where i touch down on the ground it's yes. 90 feet across it's 90 on the big on two on skis the, yeah and how high are you getting uh, I mean, well, there is a gap too. So that looks, I mean, when you're, when you're over the gap part, you're probably 40 feet off the ground in some spots, uh, above but, the ramp though, you're 22, 24. So oh, not even that high, probably 15 to 18 15. above the takeoff. Yeah. So the take, how high is the jump? That, that launch pad one, that metal one, it, I think it was like it was like 10 meters tall. It was, it was almost big, 30 feet, 30 foot tall. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Holy it was a beast. Smoke. It was awesome. Yeah. You guys should definitely check it out. Check out my highlight video, uh, on my YouTube channel, Mr. David Wise. So you're clearing a 90 a foot, you're going 90 feet across the gap yeah. from takeoff to landing. And then you said that the vert, the verta- verticality, is that a word of the, of the landing is what makes those jumps so special when you that's land. That's what makes them safe. What makes yeah, them that's, safe. Where, that's where you can take a big ass jump that looks scary, looks intimidating. And yet these guys are throwing triple corks on there. How does that make sense? That's a big ass, scary looking jump. Well, it's because they're built so well that the landing is actually low impact. Uh, where the, where the, the pitch of the landing matches the takeoff so well, it almost looks like when you, when you set the landing gear down, when you put your feet down, it almost looks like you just fell one foot. So you're talking about the amount of vert, the vert, 
the, just the steepness, the degree the, of vert, yeah. the yeah. steepness of it mm-hmm. is almost straight up and down. No, no, it's not. No, there, no, it just, it it's just not has like to a half match. pipe. Then it's it not just, like a half pipe. No. Well, that was, that was where we set the, set this new world record, the quarter pipe to bank landing. So there's the big ass jumps in the middle. And then on each side, there was a quarter pipe feature, which is, which is vertical. You take off going straight up, you land back on the same surface or similar surface to what you took off on. So 90 feet in the air and you say a triple cork is what some of these guys were doing is, did you do a triple one, cork? One dude did a quad cork, which is hard for me to wrap my mind around. No, I, uh, like I said, I don't, I don't jump as much as I used to. Um, when I was younger, I competed in slope style, big air, half pipe, uh, everything. And so I would do a lot more jumping. I, I, I limit myself to double corks anymore. I try to just do jumps. I try to, when I'm doing jumps, and, uh, at, especially at a film and photo event like that, I try to just do the things that I can make look good and what and fun. And so what is a cork? Uh, that's a great question. Um, the layman way to describe that is in free skiing, the term cork, uh, if you hear the term cork, uh, that's our way of describing essentially a flip. Um, uh, basically with the advent of basically <laughs> once people started spinning off axis, so there's, there's straight over the top, which is a backflip or front flip. That's, that's one version of rotation. And then there's straight around your, your, your normal axis, which is spinning 360, 540, 720. Um, but when you kind of combine those two things, that becomes a cork. So, uh, it's not, it's neither a flip or just a spin. It's a cork spin. So it's off axis rotation. Um, so when somebody does a quad cork, they're essentially doing a quadruple flip. You said layman's terms. So off axis rotation. Mm-hmm. So you, okay, I'm approaching the jump. Yep. Got my goggles on. I hit the bottom <laughs> of the jump and now I'm going up. Yep. And now all of a sudden my, my, you know, you don't ever put your poles on the ground when you're taking off. Do you have poles? Yeah. Okay. You got your poles and you get your momentum going. They're tiny poles. You get to the jump, you lift your poles up, they go back. Now you're looking at the ramp and then all of a sudden you're looking up and your, your skis are on the ground. You hit the ramp. Uh Okay. Now you're in air, but you're thrust, you're thrusting forward over a 90 foot gap. Yeah. And you're saying that when you thrust forward, as soon as you hit the air and you get up over the gap, you do a front flip, like you're jumping into a swimming pool, just a regular front flip, but you're off axis a little bit. So it's kind of like a, a cork rotation? I don't understand where the, the <laughs> word cork comes from. Cork is, it always has to do with spinning. spinning. So if you're going straight, if you're, if you're not spinning, if I'm not doing a 360 degree rotation or 540 or 720, um, it's not a cork. Then it's not a cork. So you're, That's you're a flip. spinning That's and flipping flip. at the same time. Yes. That would be a cork. If you're spinning, but if you're, if you're going, it's, it looks like this, just a wobble. It's, it's rather than going straight up and over, you, you just walk. Is like. that easier to just go up straight up and over than to, to do a cork way easier? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. No. So how, when you're talking about being this, this extreme of an athlete, what, and I know timing is everything on this. What is the timing from the time you hit the lip of that jump, meaning your skis leave the ground and you're in air now and you've got to get up obviously. So now you climb up to 14, 15 feet high. Do you wait until you're at that height to do the first cork, the first no, spin flip, you, or is it right when to, you take off? Wh- free skiing is all about contact spin. So, um, there's different types of rotation. If I was a, if I was a traditional gymnast or an aerialist, uh, they do a, what's called tilt spinning where they take off of the jump and they start flipping immediately. And then they can actually use their arms to start to spin. 
for us on if we're doing anything with the new school anything with poles basically any of the sports that i any of the things that i either competed in or, or still do uh it's called contact spin where you set the you set the rotation on takeoff I could not, if you, if you forced me to not set any rotation on the takeoff and then try to do a spin out of it, I would, I would just flop through the air. I would look like a, like a wounded duck. Um, so yeah, it's, it's all contact spin. So I start spinning, I start the rotation on takeoff and I'm already into it as soon as I take off the ramp. So as soon as you take off the ramp, you're starting it. So you personally aren't going to do a, quad, a a triple or a quad cork because you haven't jumped. I've done triple corks. You've done I, triple corks. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not pushing that. I'm not pushing the envelope. That's not where I'm pushing. I get that. You make your money in the half pipe. Yeah. But still, when you're in a half pipe, you're doing some stupid ass tricks too. Yeah, I'm, I'm the pushing lid. the limits of, of half pipe skiing for sure. Yeah. So when you're in the air and you get that first one done on contact, you boom, you hit it. Is it just continuous? Boom, boom, boom. And you, yeah. And then, and then it's all about weeks. spatial awareness. It's all about knowing, okay, this is how far I am from the landing. This is how much of the rotation I have yet to do. And then, you know, I either need to bring my legs in and speed this thing up, or I need to actually open my arms up and legs up and slow it down. That's all just, I mean, that's, that's all kind of innate. But that's essentially what you're doing. Is that you're getting there early assessing. and learning the course and learning the jump and knowing what you got? Or is yeah, it going, and, and, and doing, and you get doing it all year long. Practice runs. But that, that certain course in Austria, you weren't doing it all year long. How many days of practice or warm-ups or, or trial runs do you get before you actually go, okay, holy shit, I'm ready to do three corks spin flips over this 90-foot gap? It, it all depends on the vibe. That's, that's the nice thing about a film and photo event is it's not about – it's not a contest. It's not do it now or – death or glory right now. It's more like, oh, you feel good? Do it. I mean, the 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 38 foot air out of that quarter pipe feature uh, was on day one. I got there, got comfortable with the quarter pipe, decided to go high and went really high. 38 and a half feet above the takeoff. 38 and a half feet in the air. Christian Hasoy, who was one of the baddest ass vert skaters of all time, would go 10 or 11 feet above the vert ramp. Yep. You're, you're three over three times that in the air on skis, which is more unstable than anything, in my opinion. But <laughs> no, that's not true. Oh, that's come what, on. Skis are way more stable than, than a skateboard or a BMX bike or anything. Not like more that. than a snowboard on snow. Absolutely. Really? Yeah. really? Two edges. Think about it. Think about the structure. Think about it. I, can I put, hate when I can't I can argue put with my somebody. feet. I can put my feet all the way at shoulder width, whereas a snowboard, their, lo- their feet can't move. Uh, I, but your landing two not, edges. But the landing is what I'm talking about. There's no way the landing's more stable oh, yeah, on skis. Really? Stable. Yeah. Wow. I would never guess that. I yeah, would think that's, that that's why skiers generally go higher. 38 and a half feet year above. Now that sets the record? That's, that's the record. It, we, so there's the old quarter pipe record, which was set by Simon Dumont. And that was 35 feet. But he did it on a traditional quarter pipe, whereas the quarter pipe we built uh, had a banked landing to make it. Uh, he built a, a giant ass quarter pipe and put an airbag on top of it so that if he totally F to take off up, he landed on the airbag. That was his safety net. Whereas we approached it saying, why don't we make the safety net out of snow instead of an airbag? So we built the takeoff, traditional quarter pipe takeoff with a slightly banked landing so that we could safely go as high as we wanted uh, without feeling like we were, like I was taking any unnecessary risks. So once we went 38 and a half feet, it was kind of like, oh, well, do we call this the quarter pipe record? 
And we kind of decided, you know, it's not actually a traditional quarter pipe because it's not, I'm not taking off and landing on the exact same surface. I'm taking off of a quarter pipe and landing on a slightly varying surface. So we just claimed a new record. We're going to call it the 38, 38 and a half, 38.4 feet is the world record on a quarter pipe to bank landing. So 38 and a half feet above the takeoff with a, with a, with a non-traditional landing. Uh, so we didn't, we didn't claim to have beaten Simon's record, even though had we not gone higher than his old record, we wouldn't have said anything. So. So where does that record go? Is it just in the heads of you extreme skiers or is it actually documented? <laughs> it's documented. So are you ever going to get Guinness out there and do this in front of an actual world record book to where your name's in the Guinness book of world records? I mean, the, the reality is Guinness is a brand just like anybody else. It is a world record. Everybody recognizes it as a world record. It's my second world record. I don't need Guinness to tell me if it's a world record or not. It's the skiing community knows. And where can I go online to see that documented to make sure that I know that David Weiss is telling the truth on this podcast? Just Google it. It's there. So you own two world records now. Yep. And world records in the ski world. I own a couple more, but those are the only two big ones. Those are, what are the, what's the other big the one? The other one is a quantity of uh, hits in a half pipe. That's the other world record that in a, you in a, in a half pipe on skis. How, how many times in one run through the half pipe did I air out of the coping? In land. Yep. 22 how, times. In one run? In one run. And what's average? Oh, well, we're, when we're competing, it's six, five or six. So you had that many tricks that tight in no, a half No, I didn't pipe. do any tricks. I just, I, I just, just was doing straight airs. Well, that's still a trick. Yeah, it's still something. <laughs> so you're doing, you get 22 straight airs in a, in a half pipe, keeping them tight, or you just stayed in one spot back and forth? Or how does it, you, are you? Well, going, you can't, you can't, you can't, because you can't you, get out of the coping. Uh, at least on, there's enough drag on skis. Whereas if I was, the, the record would be irrelevant if I was on a skateboard because a skateboarder, because they're on bearings, they're rolling, they could air out of a half pipe a million times in a row. It's, it's more of a, an endurance thing, like, right? You can just roll back and forth, air out, air out, air out. Whereas on skis or on a snowboard, you have so much drag from friction, you actually can't stay in the same spot and still make it above the coping. So that, that, was, the, that was the litmus test, was it had to be above coping to count, whereas my, my skis, boots, body, all of it had to leave the half pipe. And that was where I, I got 20, 22. Yeah. So, and what were the, none at? of them were very high. So like what, I said, I was conserving speed as much as I could. I was conserving uh, distance in, in the pipe as much as I could. Yeah. How high were they? Four feet or to 10 feet or what were you oh, talking about? No, not even like we're talking. Yeah. The first couple ones were probably four or five feet. And by the end I was just barely making it out. So you're going straight up and then coming down backwards or are you going no, up spinning, coming, spinning, down, spinning yeah, coming down, spinning, coming down, spinning, coming down. Just doing 180. That's yeah. a lot of endurance though. That's a good workout. 22 times. good workout. I was, I was gassed by That's the end. A lot of workout yeah so this new world records in austria you go 38 and a half feet above this quarter pipe jump and this is day one yep out of how many out of uh, four six. days six days yeah six days your family your wife and kids are on the mountain every day watching you? they were there watching when i when i did this yeah they were standing there on the feet is it open to the public I mean, it's loosely open to the public. They kind of discourage people. They don't want a bunch of riffraff in there. It's part, part of the event is making it look good. So they want to, they want to keep the backgrounds clean if they can. Uh, the very last day of the event is a public day when they do let crowds come in and get close to the feature and see it up close. Um, but it's at the same time, it's on, it's on the glacier up in Solden. So anybody can see it from a distance. You just can't get too close to the feature. You just can't get too close to it. So day one goes by, you go back, you have a beer. I just set a world record. 
kicking ass. You go out there the next day and it's just content driven. I'm yep. going to, I'm going to jump when I feel Do comfortable. as much as you, as much or as little as you want. And who owns the pictures? The photographers own the, own the pictures, but we're all working together. You're all working you know, together. Generally, so you'll, generally you'll, you'll all, uh, if, if one of the photographers, they, the, during that event, they actually have a film and photo contest going on as well. So, um, there's four invited photographers. And so if the photographer has some, like say they wa- they're watching us ski and, and the one dude's like, man, I really love what you're doing on that feature. Can we, can I get a custom angle on that one? Will you do that again? Then we'll work together. And then, you know, obviously cool. they'll usually share those photos. We get to share them on our social Trans media. Trans Snowboarding Magazine. What, where, where are these going into? Are they going into publications, websites, most digital? Of them, most of them are digital now. It's all, it's all you know, digital, digital publication. Um, occasionally we'll get, uh, like one of my only covers I've ever gotten on Free Skier was from Audi 9s a couple of years ago. Do you, do you have a copy of that framed in your house? And Yeah. I'd like to oh, get yeah. a copy of that sign. You got some extras? Uh, I don't know. I can look into Come it. Come on, David. <laughs> so what's, you're married with kids. Was there a time where you'd go back after setting that world record and tear the bar down and then go back up there feeling like shit the next day? Or are, were you always so focused and, and disciplined to where there was never that a chance to party hard Why there was actual days left in a competition or a, a content driven deal like this, where you needed to perform injuries at a high risk. Mm-hmm. Did you ever get to the point to where you got out of focus a little bit or out of whack to where the party or the celebrity or the, the nightlife took control? Maybe Maybe it, I'm not saying where it took over everything. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying maybe one time where you did that to where now it's family. You got dinner with the wife and kids and then you're in bed by nine o'clock. Have things changed along the way or have you always just been this mellow David Wise that never went out and tore the bar down and was the life of the party and then got up on the mountain the next day, hung over or anything like that? No, man, I like to have a good time just like anybody else. Um, but my definition, I think my definition of a good time is a little different than everybody else's or maybe it isn't uh maybe i just have recognized that because uh, certainly i've i've overindulged in the nightlife and gone out and tried to ski feeling like shit and realized i don't want to do this man the skiing that. is more important to me than the, than the drinking the skiing is more important to me than the nightlife dude i'll sit there on a pool table all night i'll i'll, I'll stay there until the sun comes up playing pool but i just don't i just don't like to overindulge in drinking because man i feel awful the next day and what i want to do is push the limits of what i can do on a pair of skis and so that from a from a really young age man all the way through high from high school through you know my early years as a professional athlete um the couple times when i overindulged and hated myself the next day and couldn't do what i wanted to do on skis uh affected me enough to know all right i want to keep it cool so that i can go out there because maybe today is going to be maybe tomorrow is going to be a banger day. And I would hate to, I would hate to be limited because I decided to spend too much time drinking the night before, you know? And, and I, we talked about balance earlier. I believe in balance in everything. I believe it's, I believe it's, it's a negative thing to, um, be so caught up in your craft that you don't enjoy it along the way. Um, when I was a young competitor, competitive skier, I was, I was actually overstressed. I was over, over, over amping going into contests. And I was so focused on being the best skier I could possibly be 
uh, at some point I realized that I wasn't even enjoying the ride. I, I was, I had the coolest job in the world and I was so stressed about being successful that I wasn't even enjoying that. I wasn't even taking it all in. So, um, I think it's, I think it is important to, when you have a banger day where you set a, a new world record to have a couple of brews with your friends and enjoy it. And, and, and for me, even celebrating with my family is awesome. Um, but you just got to have balance. Yeah. You don't want to, yeah. You don't want to, you don't want to ruin the next day. What is, what is the lifestyle like though as a whole to where there's several lifestyles to where when you perform, you have a good day, good duck hunt, good, good, good series wrap up of a baseball series or whatever. And it's always been significant with it to where celebration and partying and overindulgence and closing down the bar and listening to the live music and doing karaoke and making sure that you're enjoying that part of it. Is that common in extreme sports? Because if you do have to perform in the next 48 hours and you, you can't really even afford to do that part of it. Whereas in duck hunting, you have a gun, a loaded gun. You shouldn't go out in the blind hungover. You right. need to know when to call it quits, but people do it left and right. I get it. I understand that it's happening. They're, they're overzealous to be at duck camp. They're, mm -hmm. they're away from all the pressures and the grind of everyday nine to five life. They get there. They might the first night they're like, Oh man, let's go. And then by the third night they're like, Oh, I'm going to bed at seven. But it's yeah. that first night toward the next day, they're still going out there and shooting guns in the ski world. It seems to me like the, the, the chances of injury and the probability of, of air are so high when you're doing the things you guys are doing. And then you take in the elements that we discussed earlier with the wind and the shift mm -hmm. and, and, and having to judge that. Has it, is, it, is it part of that lifestyle where you've seen it to where these extreme athletes will go out and just get freaking partied out and then still go compete the next day when they have that? Not just the gold medal, not just the sponsor money, not just the championship money, but their health and well-being and safety on the line? Is yeah. that, does my question make sense? It almost yeah, seems like extreme you. athletes should never drink or celebrate <laughs> when they got that much shit on the line. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because ironically, I mean, the 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 action sports culture is is just indoctrinated with partying. You, I mean, we're talking about the dudes who send it in all aspects of life. They send it the hardest on whatever device they happen to be riding at the, at the moment, skateboard, BMX bike, mountain bike, uh, skis, snowboard, whatever they send it on. They send it on skis. And then at night they send it at the bars. That's just, that's just the culture. And, um, it, but, it, but it, it, there is a lack of balance there. If you're, if you're looking at it objectively, it's like, no, it's, you shouldn't be doing 20 foot airs hungover, right? That isn't that, doesn't that seem risky, but guys get used to it at the, the, some, some guys are just, that's just their style. They, they enjoy the party. They, they're, they're there. Some guys are there for the party. Some guys, that's the reason they ski or snowboard is because they can, be out there with their friends doing something fun and then they can go and party and they almost prioritize the partying versus the skiing or snowboarding. Doesn't everybody, it almost seems like it, it, it almost seems when you have something that's riding on that much focus and that much preparation and you'd go and you land a 38 and a half foot quarter pipe world record air jump it, it's almost like the next thing that goes off in an athlete's mind or somebody that's out at, at camp or getting, you know, with the boys or whatever, with their girlfriends. It's like, 
celebration time. It's party yeah. time. And it just, I, I just, ha- I'm having a hard time grasping that. And I get it because you send it, you look at somebody like Pastrana or the, not even the jackass guys, you would think that they're just hardcore parties, which it's been well documented that they are. I don't know about Johnny, but I know Bam and at one time Steve-O, these guys, and again, they were doing, they were putting their bodies through the ringer. Yeah. You guys are too. You are sending it. Like you said, I love that word, send it. You know, I, I've always said like, let it eat, but you mm. guys are sending it big time every time it just i'm having a hard time grasping that anybody could go out there with alcohol in their system and and be able to pull off what you guys are pulling off because it's not an easy feat now i'm not saying that going out and hitting a randy johnson 98 mile an hour fastball is an easy feat but you can't go out there hung over and have your vision right Right. your balance right, your equilibrium right, the alcohol content and what it does to your blood and what it does to every aspect of your body, your nervous, your central nervous system. I just can't grasp that somebody would go off a jump 38 feet in the air and be in that kind of, I just can't get, it just doesn't make any sense. Well, the, yeah. For, first of all, that is the highest. So nobody's going to do that. Okay. But it's even, even 20 <laughs> feet, yeah. even 20 so feet. I think, I think here's a short answer to your question. Uh, first of all, for me personally, it's not sustainable. I've, I've experimented, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally with, um, like I said, even lack of sleep is, is detrimental to your performance. Uh, you know, poor diet is, is, is detrimental to your performance. So I've realized that personally with my amount of talent, which I, I always feel, I always tell people like I'm actually one of the less talented guys. And if you're just talking about what you were given out of the box, I always felt like one of the less talented guys. I always had to work a little harder for it. So with the amount of talent that I possess from the start, I personally cannot have anything be wrong and still perform at the highest level. I can't have my diet be wrong. I can't have my sleep patterns be wrong. I can't, I can't be, I can't have alcohol in my system. I can't be hungover and still perform at the levels that I want to. Some dudes are so damn talented. I'll be honest with you. Some dudes are so damn talented that they can get away with it. I've been beaten by, by guys when they were hungover and I was having a good day and they were hungover and I was like, well, this is my day. And they kicked my ass. It happens. There's some people are that good. Is there no drug testing in like the X Games? I know there is not, an Olympics, not obviously. Not the X Games, though. but all the, all the uh, ones that are under the um, Olympic umbrella, so all the Grand Prix, World Cups. So you can't have alcohol in your system on those, right? No, can't, no. Is that is that not a performance-enhancing drug, or would it be considered a, P, a PED? I don't, I don't know. think so. Nope. I, uh, so you could have alcohol in your system and be fine? Yeah. So you could you could go out on the on, on, on an Olympic half pipe event and those guys there's a chance that some of these no. guys that send it might have a little bit of I a really point. don't think so so uh, yeah I, I, <laughs> we're going we're going down a pretty heavy rabbit trail uh, I'm I, just wondering now if any I sports, don't think anybody's competing I don't think anybody's competing hungover because okay. usually the usually the heavy partying comes after the events over like you the said, entire it's, events it's, over yeah. that was my point first yeah. night of duck camp well usually it's you know we have quali- a lot of times we have qualifiers and finals nobody celebrates after qualifiers okay. yeah i made finals let's go drink no it's like after finals that's, that's when what i was happened. wondering is if but, the partying is every night no it's not every uh, like i said for me personally it's it's none nights but for for some guys it's it's only after the events over for some guys it's it, oh the weather forecast looks shitty tomorrow let's go out and have a few um so it's uh, like i said each person knows their own style but uh getting back to the question you asked earlier is uh is it possible and i think it's possible with an extreme level of talent 
to even do what I do hungover. Look at Bodie Miller, one of his, one of his most famous, uh, one of the most controversial things he ever said was that he has won some World Cups ski racing while hungover. And people were just, people were just baffled by that. And like I said, with an extreme amount of talent, it's possible to do what I do and do it well for a short amount of time. But like I said, I, I'm the guy who's trying to set the bar and you might beat me once or twice hung over, but you're not going to beat me 10 times in a row because I'm going to go out there and I'm going to chip away at it. Okay. So say you beat me today. I'm going to be in the gym tonight because you beat me today and I'm going to be dreaming up new runs. I'm going to be dreaming up, dreaming up new tricks. And so it's not sustainable in the long run. You can get away with it for a little while, but eventually it's going to, it's going to bite you in the ass for sure. So 38 and a half feet in the air, you have a couple brewskis with the guys, see the wife, have some dinner, a schnitzel or whatever it was have called. Have some schnitzel. Yeah. Schnitzel, which I'm, made me hungry because I love veal. Yeah. <laughs> But the, the event goes on, you're jumping every day, you're getting this content, you're getting, um, you're feeling good, you're posting stuff, I'm following you, the, 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 there's helicopter footage and drone footage, yeah. and I mean, there's some action going, I mean, that's, it looks that's like That's the a, whole point, man, they, they, bring, they bring the best riders in the world and the best videographers and filmers and photographers in as well. We have one guy who's a, uh, a race drone pilot, that, that's his profession, he, he flies racing drones, and uh, he was following us with GoPros, it was pretty sweet. And you're just laughing and having a good time. You're focused. This is some big, this is some big Fo- jumps. Focus, but it's, but it's, a, Relaxed it's more focus. of the art side. It's the art side of skiing. Whereas uh, pipe competition can be a little intense from time to time. Uh, I still try to find the joy and try to find the, the art side even when I'm competing. But um, this is pure art. It's just doing what you think, doing what you want to do, when you want to do it. If you feel off that day, and you go down and sit and watch everybody else, nobody's going to complain because that's, that's what the event is about. It's about doing what so you want. So let me ask you this, and don't take this the wrong way. I'm just trying to figure this out. Yep. You, you encountered some, some setback on this trip. <laughs> some and adversity. This, some big-time adversity. Uh-huh. So is this adversity, and I want you to explain what happened, but yep. is this adversity because your focus as a competitor is at a different level than your focus for the artistic value of these photos and content? So you were almost too nonchalant, too like, oh, I'm just going to go up there and jump again. I already set the world record. And now all of a sudden you come down and and take it from there. Was your It was your focus right and your commitment to the jump right because now – you're not doing the things that you want to do because you're on crutches and a cane. You're walking pretty good, but you suffered a freaking hellacious femur break, right? Yeah. So tell me what happened. Yeah. So, uh, it's all, it's real easy looking back to see all your mistakes. Uh, I had one and, and that's the thing about my sport is, um, you know, we descri- I described to you earlier the, the, the clearances of the jumps that we're going off of and the gaps and the landings and, uh, at any point, if something goes catastrophically wrong, I mean, I could die doing what I'm doing. Um, I could break things. It's, it's sort of part of, part of the risk, part of the calculatedness of, of what I do is assessing how much risk you're taking and uh, trying to minimize that as much as possible. So looking back for me, uh, it was the last day. It was the public day. We were kind of just putting on a show for the people of Austria and I was having a good time. I had just done a, you know, I, I had just done a really high air on the quarter pipe. I was looking to, I was looking to play around and do a unique a different take on the feature and um 
like I said, I think we were 40 minutes from the end of the day. And I was 40 minutes from having a brew with everybody and saying, banger week, nice work. Let's move on to the next thing. Like I was 40 minutes from the end and um, a split second decision. I decided to try to land on this uh, small landing next to the landing that I had done the 38 foot air on and just missed the landing a little bit, landed right on the edge of one landing and another. And um, sort of the combination of the impact force, just the traditional landing force. I was coming down from high in the air. I think I was probably 20 feet in the air on that one. So I'm coming down from 20 feet in the air onto a quarter pipe landing and the force of that impact with the fact that I landed right on the edge and just just barely clipped my leg uh, on the edge of this feature. But because I clipped my leg and the, the, the two forces combined, the sideward force from clipping my leg and the downward force from uh, landing 20, from 20 feet in the air uh, just shattered my femur. And like I said, it's easy to look back and say, oh yeah, I wasn't mentally thinking about that, you know, how that might go wrong. I was a little bit lack of focus. It was towards the end of the day. Uh, you guys can go back and watch. We just actually launched the YouTube video where it shows the injury. Really? The whole, oh yeah. It's all on there, man. Can you watch it? Can, oh yeah, I can watch it. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. I don't, I don't struggle with PTSD like, like some people do, um, I'll, I'll admit I had a GoPro running on my head when I, when I, when this thing went down and hearing myself say my femur is broken. (laughs) It's definitely my femur, uh, was brutal. So how do you land? Is it like you land within like your quads, like ripped to the back of you and it just snaps in half? No, I landed, I landed normal and I was just Just right pressure. on. Yeah. I was just right on the edge and I just clipped my hip and, and you can see, I mean, you can see it from the GoPro angle. I'm, it looks like I'm going to be totally fine. And then all of a sudden I'm folding over my leg and you know, you shouldn't have. So your focus your was there though. Yeah. You, was, were, you were dedicated to the jump. Yeah. You just had mis, I, I, miscalculated the land. Dude, if I had gone, if I had gone six inches further, right, I would have landed real heavy, maybe bruised my heels, been pissed at myself, been like, fuck, I missed that landing. If I had, <laughs> if I had landed uh, a foot further to the left, I would have been completely fine. It was just where I happened to land was Murphy's Laws. It was perfectly the wrong situation for my femur. And walking away from it, so yes, I can look back and say, okay, I lost a little bit of focus there. I didn't think that one thing, I didn't think that one completely through. I wish I could go back and think that through a little bit more. But I can't, you can't live your life in the past like that, man. It happened. It sucks. I'm pissed at myself. That was the first thing I said. I, I was about to plug the, the YouTube video. You can see one of the first things that I say is, that was so dumb. You never hurt yourself doing something smart. That was my quote from that from that injury. It was like, damn it, you never hurt yourself doing something smart. That was so stupid. It was tiny. It was worthless. It was You're such... T- are you talking in this no voice value. or are you in some serious pain? Uh, a little bit of both. I, I was in pain, but I was trying to stay cool calm collect i was in shock too so i mean when you when you when you break your femur you go into almost instantaneous shock um yeah wild experience man but uh going back to i can i can sit there and be bitter about it or i can i can kick myself i can say man that was so dumb now you set yourself back you're blah 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 this thing that you planned on doing is not gonna happen now and i could just be beating myself up but my personal strategy is just to embrace the difficulties in the same way you embrace the triumphs. When I win a gold medal, I have to enjoy it, celebrate it, but I can't let it change my outlook on life. 
I can't let when when things are good, you can't let that change your your perspective because then you start to expect things to always be good. It's the same thing in the hunting world, man. When you when you have a hot streak, it's easy to sort of change your approach and say and it start expecting things to keep going good. Things have been going good for so long, they're going to go good forever. I'm going to keep knocking, I'm going to keep filling tags, I'm going to keep shooting limits, I'm going to keep going and going and going. But you have to you have to embrace the good times with a little bit of reservation in the same way that you have to embrace the hard times with a little bit of hope and a little bit of optimism. So yeah, crashed, broke my leg, sucked. Had to go to hot, had to go, had to get airlifted to the hospital. Talk to me in about the helicopter comes in, the same one that's got the photographers in it, or do they send the actual care flight? No, the care flight. Yeah. They, they're that, and in Austria, they're, I mean, they're, they're, the mountains are so big and so steep there. Pretty much any injury gets airlifted. Like it's, whereas when you get airlifted in the States, it means you're damn near dead. But uh, here in Austria, they're, they're broken leg, broken shoulder, bro- whatever. They, they'll they'll send you. But with that kind of an injury, I mean, there's no doctor on site, is there? There was no, a doctor. Yeah. So they they the out- first person who walks up to me that I informed I had broken my femur was a doctor. So there's no he can look at it and know right away. There's no chance of internal bleeding going on and nothing drastic to where they need that to was, act now. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> So I've, I've had some friends get compartment syndrome where, uh, the, the, you get so much swelling so fast that the blood flow to your limbs ceases. And if you get, if that goes on for too long, then your nerves start to die off. And uh, I have a couple of friends with drop foot where, uh, you, the tendons on the front of your foot can't pick your foot up anymore. And so when I, when I broke this bone and I could tell because I could move my hip and I couldn't move my foot. So I knew something's not connected in there, bro. Um, So that was the first thing I said to the doctor is I was like, are we doing things right? Do we need to compress this? Like how, how can we avoid compartment syndrome? Uh, After the fact, now I know I didn't know this before. Compartment syndrome is generally uh, happens when you, when you break your lower leg uh, bones. So your tibia or fibia or even your tibial plateau things like that because the uh there's so much less room for swelling to go in your lower in your lower leg than there is in your upper leg uh it's really uncommon to get compartment syndrome uh in your when you break your femur so i was stressed i was like ah are we doing this right are we getting to the hospital fast enough they were kind of taking their sweet time it felt like that's what i was asking for i mean i'm sure to them it seemed fast but to me it seemed like i was there getting bundled up put into the snow put into the back of the snowmobile putting into the into the helicopter and flown out it seemed like it took forever and i was stressed because i was like man this is my livelihood i need to not have my nerves die um but they you know that's what they do that's their trauma is their thing that's what they're good at uh those especially the the paramedic who flew in on the on the chopper he and uh it's funny because they live, like I said, you can watch all of this on the YouTube video, but, uh, they lifted me onto the back of the sled and I was like, ow, cause somebody jostled my leg a little bit. And the, one of the paramedics was like, all right, well, uh, we're not gonna, we're not gonna listen to this guy scream anymore. And then he dosed me with some, some heavy narcotics. And all of a sudden I was no longer on this planet. It was pretty, pretty wild experience. I just can't. So you're at a natural high, you don't go to a natural low like this. You're, you you do not get PTSD, but as a, as an, an athlete, do you get sad? Are you depressed? Oh, is there a slight yeah, version? Is there a slight, it, is there a depression that sets in right away because you know that 
are you, I don't know, are you going to be able to recover fast enough to make the next big event in, in September or August, wherever it's at? I mean, this seems like a pretty uh, uh, heavy rehabilitation uh, process coming up in your life. So where are you at mentally when, when you know you're in that snowmobile, you're taking their sweet ass time, you're getting ready to get airlifted out of there. Are you just like sad as shit now when you were just on top of the world 72 hours before? Yeah, more uh, probably my original reaction was anger anger at myself, anger at the situation. Uh, and I'm not going to pretend to be a, a superhuman. I'm not the most positive guy on the planet. I don't just naturally react to adversity with this like, oh, it's going to be all good mentality. Like I, I, go, I struggle through depression just like anybody else, man. That's I was bummed. Hear. I was super bummed. Honestly, uh, if I was going to pick a time to get hurt, now's the time. And uh, in terms of in terms of recovery and being back for next season and stuff like that, having a femur fracture in the late spring or, or I mean early spring is really not that it's really not that bad. Uh, I, I would have been way worse off if I had blown my ACL. Uh, I've I've had two ACL reconstructions and I'll tell you that the recovery process is way worse for those than it is for this. Uh, in terms of acute pain and just the day to day struggle uh, through the injury. This is way harder. The, I mean, my, my leg is constantly throbbing. It's been throbbing since the, the moment I had the accident. Like, it's just, it's just part of the game. You just are in pain. Um, I was in the hospital for nine days because they put me into surgery almost immediately. And it wasn't, wasn't like emergency surgery where they were trying to save my life, but it was like, we got to do this. We got to take care of this quickly. Um, so, and I lost some blood. I mean, obviously I had a traumatic injury. I have, a, I have an incision from my knee all the way up to my hip. Like they opened me wide open to get that femur exactly right. Cause think about it. When you shat, when you, when you break your femur, Oh my God, they have to put the, this is a hard podcast to do for me. This right is tough, man. Oh, dude. This, like you asked about the adversity. Oh, I know. So I'm gonna tell you I'm about it. it no, they, they so, cut you. They zippered you from your knee to your hip, yeah, right in the middle of your quad, staples. right at the middle. No, no. From on the side, on the side, right up yeah. your IT band. Yep. Oh my gosh. Yeah. My IT band has a nice, how uh, many stitches? 42 staples. 42 staples. It would have been like 600 stitches. That would have been a bunch. A lot. Yeah. 42 staples. Yeah. And so I was, I was just starting to explain. Um, <laughs> one of the most important things about having a good surgeon when you break your femur is making sure that they don't make your leg too long or too short. Because they put a rod in there. That's I'm not in a cast right now. You're, you're like, hey, you're walking around with a cane. You actually look pretty good. It's like, yeah, because the the essentially the casting process is internal. They put a rod in your femur, so and they lock that thing in there. If 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 we're if your house is on fire right now and we had to run out of here, I could run because they actually physically put the structures of my leg back together. It would suck. It would hurt. But uh, but the actual bone is locked in there. It's not going anywhere. With a rod. With the rod. For life? Yep. Unless uh, unless your body reacts to it negatively, uh, which happens for some people, or if I have any issues, they'll take it out. The, your bone heals around the rod, and then they can go in there and they can take it out. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, I'll probably leave it in. But... Uh, because I've had, I've had, I have had two ACL, uh, knee surgeries and the metal in the, and they put some metal pieces in there that that's never bothered me. So I think, uh, I think I'll be fine. With dude, the you're a walking robot almost yeah, in your I'm lower turning into Robocop here. <laughs> you are. Uh, but, uh, 
the the most important thing is for them to, to make sure your length and your rotation of your leg is right because they, that, they could very easily get that a little bit wrong and then i mean for me as an athlete that would be that would end my career if i was if if i was always skiing and felt like my leg was a little sideways or a little too short or a little, little too ski long waddle going i'd be we if things would be really weird so um that was the main thing that they focused on that's why they, they had such a big incision is because they wanted to get in there make sure the bone looked exactly right put all the pieces back together just dial it so um that's the upside i mean i'm i'm part of getting through that depression uh that sadness that that misery that like oh man this sucks i can't ride my bike i can't do hardly anything fun is looking at the upside the upside is my i've had an opinion from three different doctors now who've looked at my x-rays and they're all like wow they did a damn good job so upside other upside is it's uh you know it's a it takes six weeks six to eight weeks for the bone to heal after that i can start getting after it i can start training in the gym heavy again i can start i mean it's all pain tolerance oriented it's a it's a so like i said it's a lot easier than a soft tissue injury where if i had a knee injury you know or an ankle or a shoulder those things can be actually a lot longer of a recovery because uh there's so much more you have to, you have to be so much more sensitive, uh, about not injuring it again. But for me, once the bone heals, um, then I can just start building the muscles back again. So, uh, that's another upside. It's, it's going to be, it's going to be a painful recovery, but it's going to be, uh, a short, it's going to be a shorter recovery than, than something else. Uh, another upside is like I said, the timing of the year. I mean, it's, it's May now. And, uh, you know, by mid July, I'll be back in the gym. What if, what if this was it? What if mm -hmm. that was it? What if it was an it career ending injury? Yeah. If you hit that thing and just, I don't know, well, I, God forbid, yeah, yeah. but what I, if it I, was, I what, what do you, what do you do? Then I compete in archery. Right away. You're going to start making money in archery. I mean, I'm going to try. You got enough money saved up to, to take it to that, to live yeah, for a good I, I bit. Mean, I, I would say a, a good portion of my income is, uh, based on public speaking. Anyways, I do a lot of appearances and, uh, I, I love that. I love sort of the art of motivating people because, um, I feel like I have a unique platform where, um, I didn't accomplish everything I've accomplished because of talent. I didn't accomplish everything I've accomplished because I was the best that ever was. And it was just natural. It was going to be that way. I accomplished everything that I've accomplished because I learned to work hard and I had a good team. I had good people backing me and I learned to work my ass off and keep chipping away at it. So I love to be able to take that message and say, Hey, look, I'm, I'm as, I'm as talented as you are. You might actually be more talented than I am. And I'm a two time Olympic gold medalist. So if we're talking about just making money, keeping the lights on in my house, keeping my family fed, I could, I could make a living off. But you're saying that you're with this leg injury and the pain that you just went through, you can't wait to get back in the half pipe and go up and do that crazy ass flip again yep. with the idea that this, or the, the thought that this could potentially happen in a heartbeat again. Could, could happen again. Yep. So the, going out and being a public speaker and the world champion archer isn't good enough. Now you want to get back in and do that shit. Yeah. Because it's still, I still love it. I still have that passion. So go do it, it for fun. Yeah, but that but but the fun of it to me is is pushing the limits. 
I, but I'm David, excited you about all, it. You almost, you just broke your femur in half and shattered your entire leg with a metal titanium rod in your body with two knee surgeries already. And you're telling me from across the table that you can't wait to get back in that half pipe and jump again. That is the craziness of where I was I going crazy. with my drunk <laughs> question. Like, do, do these guys party? It's like nothing matters. It's like the, the shit that I see you guys doing to your body. When I saw those videos, I was like, how in the hell do they even have the balls to try this? And now you're saying that you will do it with a metal titanium rod in your leg. That's not normal process of thinking. That's not a normal human being's ideology of thinking. It's not normal wiring. I'm not saying that you ever said you were normal. No. I'm just simply saying that you have a lot of responsibility in life now. Mm-hmm. Were your kids and wife on the mountain the day this happened? Yep. Did your kids scream they and saw, cry, or, oh yeah, or were they, they like, yeah, get your ass cried. up. Yeah. They, they, so like we talked about this with Cam Zink about when he's doing those downhill things on that bike and his wife's down there and he flips over and breaks his body in half. It's like, you're putting your family through anguish. And yeah. now you're sitting here telling me like, dude, I'm getting back in there as soon as I get the release. Yeah, but It's crazy to me. Didn't I talk about it earlier about how difficult things are not necessarily bad things? That's, that's exactly what, and I talked about my daughter, my seven-year-old and how I'm trying to teach her, Hey, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's bad. Same thing for my four-year-old son. I'm teaching him, Hey, embrace that hard stuff. Embrace that difficult embrace those difficult times and here i am with a perfect example of of me showing them how to do it for i mean from to my kids i've always been superman i've always been they're always they've never uh been old enough to experience an injury alongside me like this and so i have all these things that i'm preaching at them constantly like hey embrace the adversity you're gonna be okay but this is a prime example of me being able to put that in practice and cause I always tell my kids to choose joy. I'm like, Hey, you might be hungry. You might be cranky. You might not have slept great last night. That doesn't have to affect how you act. You can still act like who you were made to be in spite of the fact that you're a little hungry right now. And so I've, I've had the experience and I've had to ask them for forgiveness from here and there throughout this. Cause I've gotten a little, gotten a little, uh, a little grumpy from, you know, just being in pain constantly and and snapped at them. And, and I've had to say, Hey, I'm sorry. Uh, That's not who I am. That's not how I want to treat you. Um, but I have this opportunity to show them what grit is. Yeah. In my, uh, anybody's reaction to, to hard times can be to give up, but I almost, I, I almost want, I'd rather err on the side of perseverance than on the side of the quitter. I don't understand. I'm not, I love your answers. Okay. I'm playing the devil's advocate. Absolutely. Okay. You know, I I appreciate that. Yeah. But to consider yourself a quitter or giving up is the two words you just said. You have won four golds. You've won seven world cups. You've won two gold medals in the Olympics, four in the X games or more. That's not a quitter. That's not a give a giver upper. That's somebody that says, look, I've been there, done that. And I've accomplished it all. Now it's time to take care of me and my body and make sure that my family doesn't have to see me go through this shit again. Mm-hmm. That's not quitting. That's not adverse, facing adversity. You've already faced adversity your whole career. You didn't have the God-given talent. You were a football player that turned into a, an Olympic gold medalist skier. You're an awesome speaker. You got a, a, a great knack for hunting and archery and living off the land. That's not a quitter. You've already faced adversity in a lot of different ways. I'm simply saying, 
You've been there, done it. Why put yourself in the position to go through this bullshit again? <laughs> to me, I'm like, you have so much, you're young, you're 30 years old, and you're sitting here telling me, I'm going to go until I die, pretty much. It's like that, what'd you say? Go hard. What was it? All in? Send it. Send yeah. it. It's like, send it for the rest of my life. It's like, no, a, it's, it's a weird, not, th- it, it's not. No. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm going to send it till, I'm de- till I die. I, I'm, I'm a practical guy. I, I, tr- truly, I am pragmatic. And, um... I know that there's a, there's a timestamp. There's a limit on how long I can keep doing this. Um, but for me, the accomplishments came all those, that, that laundry list of, of medals. Like I always like to tell people, man, I've surprised even myself. I've won more things than I even thought I could have. Um, I, and that's just by the grace of God, man. And, and, so, but I never won those things because I never went into those ones that I actually did win saying, I'm going to win this contest today. That's my goal. I always went into those competitions saying, I have a unique run that I think the world's going to appreciate. I want to do, I want to do what I feel like I was made to do on a pair of skis and the judges can do whatever they want with it. Those are the contests I won. That's how I won in Pyeongchang. I just had come off, you know, we talked about it last time, crashing two runs in a row, two runs. Won, the, won the contest on my last run. I was able to win the contest on my last run because I was like, oh man, I got one more shot to do this run I've been working towards for four years. Let it ride. And uh, I did. I let it ride and I landed it. Surprised even myself, like I said. Um, so when it, comes, when it comes down to it, I'm not saying I need to get back because I have more things to accomplish. I'm saying I, or sorry, I'm not saying I need to get back because I have more medals to win. I don't have any more medals to win. I have nothing to prove to anybody. I have nothing to even prove to myself. I really don't care about that stuff anymore. And, and, and I don't want to belittle the competitions. I don't want to belittle the medals. Those accomplishments are amazing. And, um, I fight for them. I fight hard for them, but I have nothing left to prove except that I have some things that I want to do on a pair of skis that haven't been done yet. It's freaking. So I want to, I want, I want to be back because I haven't accomplished those goals. Name one. Is it, is it cool to let it out of the bag or is it a secret? Uh, I mean, yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah, I'll name one. That's uh that's either not a secret or won't be too much of a, uh, you don't have to. I'm just saying that there are literally things in your mind that you can fathom or that has been thought up or you've originated in your mind that you know that you can do with the right amount of practice and the right elements yeah. with mother nature in place. You want, you got to show somebody that's another trip. I feel like I trip. should. I There's feel like another I should trip. do it. Yeah. You haven't done it all on skis yet. I haven't done it all, man. And, and I, I have, if you think about it, I have the dedication. I have, uh, I have enough talent. I have an, enough assets, uh, I have a good enough team backing me that I should find out if I can pull that off. I want to pull it off. I think I can. I think I have the skills and the, and the strength and the, and the mentality to do it. And that's part of the, that's part of the journey. That's part of finding out if, if it, for me, it's about finding out if I can pull it off. Like I, like I hope to. Um, so yeah, I'm always looking, I'm always, I, and, but, I, but I also know that there's a limit and, and that I don't have anything left to prove. So, um, I'm always setting goals. I'm setting long-term goals and short-term goals and mid-range goals. That's kind of my approach to life is like, look at where I want to be. How do I get there? 
um, you know, set a huge lofty goal. I've always set lofty goals and then set a more pragmatic goal somewhere in the middle that, that would lead to that lofty goal and then set daily goals, stepping stones, if you will, to get there. And, um, if I'm being, if I'm dropping, if I'm dropping some, some knowledge on the ground right now, it's the fact that my lofty goals don't go in terms of skiing, don't go much further than the next Olympics. Um, I'm not setting myself up for two Olympics. I'm not thinking I'm going to do two. I'm thinking I'm going to do one. I'm going to give it everything I have. And then I'm going to start moving on to other things. Which is 2022. Yep. At which location? Beijing. Are you a shoe in for the team? Nope. When do you, when, when are trials? Are they right? The month leading into same, it? Same, same, as, same as the last same two. As you last find day. out two weeks before. Two weeks before. If you're going. Yeah. That's <laughs> brutal. It used to be, they used to be that the gold medalist got a free spot, uh, which would be nice in some sense, but I think it's actually a good thing that you have to fight for it because it makes you stay on it. And where will trials be? Will they be at the same ramp? They're all U.S. based. They're all U.S. based. Yeah, because it's the U.S. team that gets to choose the, it's the U.S. free skiing team that gets to choose who goes. So they've, they've based all of their qualification process around the U.S. based events to, to draw attention to the U.S. based events. So does the U.S. Olympic Committee have a construction company or a snow construction company that they hire out, that they contract out to go to Beijing and build that half pipe the exact same that it is in Aspen? Uh, not the, yeah. So the, the, the international Olympic committee oversees that type of stuff. Um, but yeah, they, they want them built to regulation. So whatever, whatever, uh, the industry decides the regulation size and length and pitch is for a super pipe competition, the international Olympic committee makes sure that whoever is putting on the event, say Beijing, uh, hires the right company to get that done. If you, if pipe you, building is an art, man. It's, oh, it's guys, guys base their entire career around just building good half pipes. Oh man. In my little bit of tenure as a wannabe skater, watching guys around here build half pipes. There was a guy in Red Rock that used to build awesome ones. He was the father-in-law of Mark Gonzalez, who I think mm-hmm. I talked to you about Mark Gonzo with Vision Skateboards, but um, good half pipes, even in the skateboard world. I mean, in, in where they've come over yeah. the years. And, but anyway, so these, so you'll go over to Beijing, which, it's going to be your third Olympics. You've won two gold medals. You're not focused on two Olympics right now, meaning two more future games. You got 2022 and 24 months from now, you're going to be in Beijing, hopefully. And we're going to keep our fingers crossed. We already know you're going to make the team. That's the way we think. (laughs) If you win the gold medal, the silver medal or the bronze medal in 2022, does a 30, how old are you right now? 30? 29. It is a 31 year old David Wise say, I'm going to compete at the next Olympic Games at 35 if you medal in 2022? Great question. Ask, ask 31-year-old me. That's a, that you don't know yet. I'm not you sure. couldn't tell me yet. Like you no, would be- I, I, I honestly, going into, ba- going into Pyeongchang, I was wondering, is this going to be my last Olympics? And I got through some really hard times going into it, and uh, I, found that, I found that passion for skiing again. And I was more excited about skiing after the Olympics than I was before the Olympics. And I realized that's an indication that I need to keep doing this. What's the number one question that you get asked after one of your speaking engagements? What's the most, not the most basic, not the most complicated. What's the most asked question that you get hit with in all of your journeys across this country, whether you're speaking mm-hmm. or just hanging, what, what do people ask? What can I see your medal? What, yep. How cold is totally. it? Up there? What, what, what's the, what's the number one most asked question? 
Yeah. Can I see the metal? Can is I take it, a photo with it? Can I it? touch it? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's almost like that metal is fake to people because yeah. I bet you that there is a, a 99 percentile of Americans that don't see a gold medal. Oh, 99. They get to hold one or even yeah. put their eyes on one, you know, in physicality yep. to where maybe That's, in a museum they see one, but yep. to know somebody that has them in their house and to actually set your mind on it or your eyes on them or even put your hands on them, if that's even allowed, um, I don't know if 99, it might be over 99%. Yeah, and, and that's why, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't bug me. I, I, I get annoyed by Olympians who are like real stingy about their medals and like keep them in a locked case or whatever. Because I'm like, that belongs to us as as a country. Like this is our gold medal. That's so I feel cool like to, for, to me, uh, you know, I'm born and raised in Reno, Nevada, still live here, love it here. That's our gold medal. That's Reno's gold medal. That's Nevada's gold medal. That's the United States' gold medal. This belongs to us. So I have a responsibility as the holder of the medal, as the guy who got to wear it and hear the national anthem played, I have a responsibility to share it with people and let them touch it. I let people wear it. Some people are, some people are weird about that. Like, oh no, I didn't win it. I can't wear it. I'm like, throw it on. It's ours. It's ours. That's yeah. so cool to hear, dude. How have you, have you shared that with other Olympians when, when on your Olympic yeah, team, some, are they, some, are they the same mindset? Most of them? A lot of them are. A, a lot, lot of them a are. couple of them are. So it's almost like you guys are I would say the majority, them. the majority of gold medal or even just Olympic medal winners are just as excited about sharing it with people. Have you them. ever had anybody from the military? ask you to wear your medal or got to share that experience yep. with, with our fighting veterans. Yeah. I, and, and I feel like a, <laughs> I'm not comparing you to No, 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 no. I want to phrase this right because I don't want, I don't want to be, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but, um, I had, I, first of all, I have a sister who's a, who's in the air force. Um, she's a pilot. And so I have a huge respect for the armed forces. I actually, yeah, had this subtle dream of, of being in the armed forces when I was young, obviously my career path has taken me away from that, but, um, I have a massive respect for the armed forces. And, uh, so whenever I get the opportunity, I like to thank people for their service. I'm like, Hey, thank you for your service. Whether you're a veteran or you're active duty, whatever it is, I always love the opportunity to thank you for your service. And I was, um, at Walter Reed visiting some, some, uh, guys that got blown up over in Iraq, in Iraq and I thanked them for their service. And I had one guy turn around and thank me for my service. And I thought that was really interesting. And I, and I realized, yeah, you're right. I am representing the U S when as, as, as a member of the United States Olympic team, I'm representing the U S in the same way that somebody who's going to war is representing the U S not in the same way. That's, that's where I don't want to, no, I, I know exactly. Way. That's what I said when you, when you were talking, I don't know if people are going to be able to hear it, but on my mic, you were still talking. And I said, so you're like a soldier. And then I went, wait, he doesn't want to hear that because it's not the same. I'm not, I'm not putting my life on the line in the same way. I'm not taking the same type of risks. I'm not. Doesn't mean I'm you not can't fighting, have the same amount of pride to I'm represent I'm not fighting for my freedom, for our freedoms in the same way, but, um, but I am proud to represent. And so that, that brought tears to my eyes. Hell I mean, yeah. this Why dude, this it? dude's an amputee and he's thanking me for isn't, my service. And that, that made it, that made it for me, uh, Cause I always feel a little selfish. I'll be honest. I'll be, I feel a little selfish as a professional athlete because I'm out there doing shit for me all day long. That, right. I yeah. wake up in the morning. I have a protein shake. That's, you know, powers my body to be the best athlete I can be. Lunchtime comes around and I eat a high protein complex carbohydrate meal. And then I spend all afternoon in the gym and, uh, right before bed, I'll make sure I do some stretching or yoga or, um, maybe visualization. Everything I do is centered around being the best skier I can possibly be. And it's hard not to feel selfish 
when that's even when you're earning a livelihood for your wife and kid. No, I, you know, I, within reason, I'm just, I, I'm I, just get, saying. I get what you're saying, but I'm having a hard time thinking like, like that's a selfish act more so of a dedication dedicated to your craft. Yeah. But there is a selfish aspect to it for sure. I mean, look at my, look why? At my because story. you're not look. fighting for our freedoms. Right. Well, yeah. here's the deal though. Everybody's got to make, everybody's got to, everybody's got to have a When crap. you go to a veteran and you, and I've asked this many times, cause I get to do a lot of cool shit with veterans in the mm-hmm. duck blind. It's, it's therapy to them. It's therapeutic. Totally. I ask them all the time. Do you ever look at somebody like me that lives this kind of life, but never went and joined the armed forces, never went in and, and, and became a Marine, never went through boot camp, never even did ROTC. Do you ever look down on people that don't, it's not necessarily that we don't have the courage or the balls to do it, but do you ever just assume that you're not a soldier? You didn't fight for they, every one of them are like, no, I put, was put on earth to do this. That's why. And we, you were giving back to us by doing what you're doing for yeah. us now. So really you thank you for your service, for what you do for veterans that come back over and put their feet on the ground or their kids or their wives. We've been, we've been through all sorts of mm-hmm. trips with them and giving back to them. It's never the same as getting on that plane that be, you know, on that C one thirty and going over there and getting yeah. dropped off in hell. There's no way it is. Yeah. We would never look at it that way. So if we can do a little tiny bit like visiting Walter Reed, yep. visiting St. Jude's at a, a cancer ward when, you know goddamn well that you would never want to see your kids go through that. Yep. But you know going in there is going to make that kid's day. Ronald McDonald House, veterans, whatever it is. It's almost like you are, they're looking at you like, thank you so much for taking time. And it yep. is, it's so humbling to hear it. I look at, I looked at a guy, Jake Young, and I went, what did you just say? And he goes, thank you for your service. And I was like, wow, dude, yeah, that's, that's the him. way they look at it. Yep. That's so humbling and so that's transparent. Sure. And you're just like, that's why I do what I do. Yeah. Yes, I do get to have a good time. And yes, I do get to eat high protein shakes and <laughs> flip over mountains on a, on a set of skis. But your craft and your dedication and commitment to that craft has got you to the point to where you get to go visit Walter Reed and not take it for granted what they did for us. Yep. That's pretty cool because not every citizen gets to visit Walter Reed. It's cool that you take advantage and capitalize on that and go in there and show them. Maybe even take advantage isn't the right word. I'm talking about advantage for them. Embrace it. Yeah. Embrace it and say, hey. I get a chance to go say thank you to these guys and they're saying thank you to me in return. It's so badass to be American in that sense. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't want to get caught up in the selfishness aspect of that I was talking about earlier because, uh, I have, I have, I have no qualms about what I do. I have no shame about what I do. I, I, I'm a shameless professional athlete. I really do feel like it, this is what I was made to do. And, um, I do take risks and some people will call me selfish just for being a free skier and having two kids. Some people tell me, people tell me that to my face, man, I can't believe you take the risks that you do and have kids. And I say, no, I'm raising world changing kids. My kids aren't going to be the soft play, play only in the soft environment kind of kids. My kids are going to be the ax throwing, bow hunting, non-participation award getting kids. No. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're growing up world changers. And if they watch me go through a little diversity on along the way, that's great. So I, I'm a shameless professional athlete. I, I take great pride in what I do. So I I don't want to get caught up in the selfish aspect of that. But that was the point I was trying to make is that sometimes it does feel selfish and you have to, in order to, you, you really do have to have an awareness of what you've been given and give back in some way or another. You have to have a, it would be really easy and it is easy. A lot of people get caught up in it. A lot of famous people get caught up in it and just thinking they're the coolest and that's enough. 
But so the reality now, is now you're going into a sense of entitlement and arrogance. Yeah, entitlement. Yeah. When your attitude and your success is based on blessed and humbleness. And Absolutely. that is the only way to be in life. Because the other way is bullshit. Yeah, and it I, is. It's, 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 it's a facade. It's so awesome to hear you be able to see that, you know, and know that early in your life, and, and, and I'm older than you by 14 years, um, it's, it's very cool to see you with that head on your shoulders. Obviously, it's the way you're brought up, the way that you were cultured, the way that you were nurtured. All of that's played a role in your life. But it's still, it's still refreshing to hear that you you understand that 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 you have been given this opportunity yeah. that it wasn't it entitled it was a gift everything you have that's is why, a gift you that's gotta why, give that's why back. hunting's so important because like totally. Re, Re, remy and i talk about it how dude this is a privilege yep we're not entitled this could be taken away tomorrow morning at 9 a.m if we're not careful yep this is a privilege it could be so and be we, careful we, we, it's a privilege all, that you get to ski for a living totally and we have so i feel like i have a responsibility to enjoy it here I am with the talents that I have, with the gifts that I've been given. I have a responsibility to enjoy it and do the best I can with it in the same way that we as Western Americans have a responsibility to go out there and enjoy our public lands, man. Yeah. Like public land, private land, whatever it is. We have a responsibility to enjoy the Western American, the North American conservation model. We have more critters on our landscape than any other country in the world has in the history of the world. Yeah. And w that's an opportunity. That's something that we should embrace as an opportunity. And so, I mean, obviously I, I also where super are you enjoying, enjoy it. Where are you going with this day? I'm just is it saying okay to, people should hunt more. Is it okay to hunt harvest fish some of those? And, hunt, fish, hike, get out there, man. Why is it okay to hunt, David? Why is it okay to take the life of an animal and, and, and provide a bounty with a high protein, organic, living off the land, no enzyme based, injected piece of meat? Why is it okay? Why is it okay to go out and kill something? Why is it okay to take that bow into a mountain range knowing that you're going to end some, you're taking the responsibility yep. to end something's life? Why is that okay? Everything has a cost, right? Vegetables have a cost. Meat has a cost. And just because somebody else paid that cost for you doesn't make the cost not exist, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't wipe the cost clean just because somebody else killed your animals for you. I just prefer to, first of all, take responsibility for that meat that I eat myself. If I can, I like to, uh, not only be a part of the harvest, but I like to be a part of the, the butchering and the processing and all everything in between. Um, I like knowing that the meat that I put on my plate and my kids plate and my wife's plate and my guests plate, my friends and family, I like knowing every step that that meat took to get to that plate, you know, from, like you said, taking something's life as quickly and ethically as you can. And, um, there's something to be said about the fact that uh, a deer wasn't wasn't raised in a cage and didn't live this, this super limited life. Yes, I did end that deer's life, but things die. Everything comes at a cost. And if I didn't take the deer down, a coyote was going to eventually, or a mountain lion was going to eventually. That's just the way it is. That's, that's the circle of life. And, um, having this super fluffy outlook on life that nothing dies for our food is, I mean, it's just delusional. Even your soybeans cost a great deal. Think about the amount of rodents that were killed by the, just the plowing process, getting the, getting, getting those fruits and vegetables out of the ground. It's everything comes at a cost. And if I'm really 
I talked earlier about how we, we need to, we need to take more responsibility for what we put in our bodies. And I have taken that on, uh, I've taken that on wholeheartedly where I started doing, um, strength based testing, uh, based around diet alone, where I was doing the same things training, but I was testing my strength based on what I had been eating. And I found that a high game, uh, I, I probably already said this once, but I found that a high game and complex carbohydrate diet was the a high best wild game, wild game. Yeah. And, and complex carbohydrate, meaning vegetables, veggies, you know, sweet brown potatoes, rice, brown sweet potatoes. Rice. Yeah. That's what performed best for me. So at the end of the day, when I go out and hunt with my bow and bring home a bounty that I can put on the plate and eat all season long, I'm doing myself a service as a professional athlete. So that's a simple answer, but the, the more complex answer is it brings me great joy to be out there in the Hills. I don't need to kill something to enjoy the process of hunting. If I kill something and I get to bring it home and butcher it and treat the meat respectfully and use every piece of the animal that I can and put it on the plate for my two little ones and my wife, that is as satisfying as it gets. It is the most badass freaking lifestyle way of life way to live that there ever was to go out and live off the land. And I don't care if you're 73 year old grandma no. in Phoenix, Arizona, growing a garden and picking squash out of it and bringing it in and cutting it up and putting it in a, totally. in a, in a cast iron. That is the coolest freaking way to live. Yep. And there's nothing different. And I love the way that you apply it to the nothing comes without a cost. And even in a vegan lifestyle, everything that comes vegans put into their bodies comes with a cost. Yep. The makeups that they choose not to use and the ones they do choose to use comes with a cost. So the whole argument about it's okay to eat meat, but we're just going to eat chicken and beef that are slaughtered, but we're not going to support a hunting I lifestyle. Can't I can't believe you would kill that animal. Yeah. Do you <laughs> Have you ever been meat? to a slaughterhouse in Garden City, Kansas? You want to see death? It's you ever gnarly. been to a chicken slaughter? You want to yeah. see death? It's, it's almost to the point to where you're like, so is branding cows like a, a, an unethical practice in the Western United States, in the Western cowboy, Western living civilization? You're like... No, it is what is done. Those cows feel it for a second and that brand keeps them alive for longer and keeps them fit and keeps them fed and keeps them in line and nutritionally benefited throughout their existence. So there's, I love the way you put it that a cost comes with everything. And when you think about soybeans being plowed up and the amount of mice that are being smoked by oh, plows yeah. and combines and things. It's amazing. If you just look at things like what the California waterfowl does with their egg salvage program, those machines were traditionally historically over the years, tearing up duck nests, just egg after egg. Cause those ducks go into heavy nests mm -hmm. because why? Cause they don't want skunks or hawks or anything else or red foxes to get the eggs. They want the nest to have a high survival rate. They go into thick cover. The farmers don't see them. The hen's Boom. not on the nest. She's out getting something to eat. Boom, kills all the eggs. Now a hen flies off the nest. The farmers see it. They call CWA. They send a team out there. They grab the eggs, put them in cartons, take them to an incubating process in the Central Valley or in, in, by Chico, California. They, ra they born, they raise them, they hatch them, they raise them, they release them back into wild. And I'm sitting there going, that's what hunters do. Yep. Isn't that enough to get you to shut up about why hunting's bad? <laughs> it's just none of it. That's why I yeah. asked you, why is it okay to hunt? And you said it with such dignity as like, everything comes with a cost. 
cost. Yep. Elk yep. are going to get disease if you don't keep the population in check. And then it's totally. going to be really bad when you see them all die because yeah. they're all going to get it. And we, we as hunters, I think the, I think the miss, uh, sort of the misinformation out there is that hunters hate animals. Oh, we boy. just want to kill them all. We love, we want to kill, we want to wipe them off the, well, the landscape. The reality is if there was two elk left, I wouldn't shoot either of them. Mm -mm. You know, I don't like killing that but much. But because of hunters, there's way more than there's two left. There's way more. Yeah. We're, 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 uh, an, we're a necessary, the reality is humans are here to stay. So we as humans are a necessary part of the conservation process. We have to take part in taking the right number of animals off the landscape or not taking the right, taking any off the landscape. We have to be constantly assessing whether there's enough to, if there's, if there's a bounty, then we should take some off because first of all, we can enjoy it. We can provide good protein. We can live off the land in that way, but we're also doing, uh, every other animal that didn't get taken off a service by taking one, one, uh, what do you call it? One, one, uh, eater off the landscape you you you, you, may, you just provided more food for the for the rest that are still there so yeah we're a huge part of the conservation aspect. we're the ultimate conservationists not only are we going out and keeping animals in check and keeping their lives their 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 populations at a healthy level we are providing the amount of financial stability and substance totally. that, that goes possible. In, that makes this possible that yep. the, the habitat that's provided the amount that just duck stamps provide for the habitat the rocky mountain elk foundation is is funded by hunters dollars the yep. mule deer foundation pheasants forever quail unlimited ducks unlimited delta waterfowl nwtf national wild turkey federation i can go on and on it's funded by hunters dollars yep. every time we buy a hunting license a duck stamp an upland game stamp a fishing license a fishing stamp a trout stamp that money part of it is going back into the habitat and the maintenance and the maintaining of these animal livelihoods so of the landscape yeah so we're, to, to we're, come the, at, we're the ones who are saying hey we need to protect these animals and we need to protect their landscape so that they can continue because we love them so, so we don't hate them we have a ton of compassion and love and respect absolutely for them. i can't even stand dude, people dude, saying I could that go out, i could go out there with just my binoculars and leave my bow at home and still walk away satisfied I'm not bringing home the meat, and and that's a huge part. But of you it don't for have me. to every time, but, but it's a huge to. part. Yeah, you know how many times I get mother effed up and down because I don't call the shot on ducks because I'm sitting there in awe. I'm mesmerized <laughs> by the power of ducks, and then all of my little peanut gallery guys in the blind next to me. What do we call the shot? We got to be killing those ducks, and I'm like, guys. No, we don't it's watch this, watch this and just enjoy this because yeah. we're going to kill our ducks, but you got to get to the point to where that means more to you than the actual pull the trigger. Now yep. I'm not saying I don't enjoy killing them. I'm not enjoy, say I don't enjoy butchering them and processing them and eating them. I love all of it. Yep. That's why I think it's the most badass lifestyle in the world because you know why we're providers. Not only do we have a, a sense of providing with our income through our skiing or through our, through our businesses, we know that we can go out and provide and it doesn't just have to be a necessity all the time. You can provide for entertainment. You can have a feel good time over wild game. Yeah. You can have a high protein diet over wild game. You can have a celebration over wild game and it makes you feel that much better because of the amount of work, knowledge, tenacity, desire, compassion, passion, everything that goes into being a hunter comes out when that freaking that, that tray is opened up and that lids taken off that tray and everybody's like, 
oh my gosh, what is oh, this? Take the first bite and that's like, elk that, backstrap. That's the you're, best meat I've ever thank had. Thank me like, later. Yeah. You're welcome. Exactly. Thank me later. And and I'm telling you, man, that is the cool. Yeah. It's cool to hear you say that. Wise about about you're very wise with the way that you look at hunting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you never heard that, but it's it's cool to know that you have that mindset about that everything comes at a cost. And it's the, it's exactly how you should answer that question. There's really no reason except ignorance to tell me that I'm, that I'm a bad person because I hunt and I'm sitting there going, Hmm, that, that, that makes a lot of sense because now we're going to go tell every hunter never to buy a duck stamp or a hunting license or spend another dollar on this for, And we're going to see where you, where you see these animal populations oh, go. We'll see apart. how much you love it. Yeah. We'll see how much you love it. The wolves need to be, the wolves are just free animals. They don't need to be kept in check. Really? <laughs> you know where a lot of your beef comes from in Montana and Wyoming and they're getting destroyed, all these cattle ranches. You know that the elk population is getting r- r- just eradicated because of wolves. They got to be kept in check. I'm not saying go in there and poison every wolf in the world. I'm saying yeah. go and keep them in check. Open up a hunting season here and there and open them up and let them be kept in check. California, can't kill a mountain lion. You can't kill a bear. You can't dog a bear. You can't do this. You can't trap bobcats. I'm like, where is the... Where is the reasoning behind cougars not being kept in check? Where is the reasoning behind it? Tell it's me. It's just an emotional response. It's emotional response by politics, by a vote, and you're sitting there going, "This is not but what this is not what wildlife is all about." It's an emotional response by the people furthest from the critters. 100%. The people who are furthest from those mountains, where those mountain lions live, are the ones who are who are setting these things in place. Hundred percent. And uh, you talked about the the provider thing, uh, and that that appeals to me more than anything else. I think the reality is like there is there is a very solid both moral and intellectual um, argument for hunting. I will never deny that. There's a solid intellectual argument for hunting, but the reality is that's not why I do it. I do it because it's innate. It's in me. I was born and there's nothing I was born that. a hunter. I don't know why I can't explain it. I can't tell you why I have always wanted to hunt. I've always had a passion for hunting, but that's just the way it is. I I would rather eat something I provided than eat the best meat that I didn't provide. 100%. I'd rather, I'd rather, I'd rather have some slightly lower quality meat. I'm not saying I, I know that it is the highest of quality, but I, I would, I would take the lower, a lower quality, uh, cut a steak that I shot myself and carried off the hill than the best Wagyu beef in the world. In a heartbeat. Um, Do you know how much pride I got? I'm not interrupting, but yesterday I took seven minutes out of my brothers and my friends' lives to open all three of those freezers out there and say, Remember the scene in Boomerang with Eddie Murphy? He's like, you got to have the mushroom belt. You got the mushroom, you got the mushroom belt. I'm like, I'm like ground, ground venison, elk backstrap, yeah. stripers from the Sacramento River, mallard ducks from uh-huh. Arkansas, widgeon. Oh, and I'm sitting there and I'm like getting, so I'm getting like, I'm getting so like emotional about it right now, knowing what's going to happen over that meat. Yep. There's no oh, freezer. There's, there's no, no freezer burnt shit. They're never no. everything's shrink wrapped and done right because I know what's getting ready to happen over the next 120 days over that meat. I That's know right. the good times. The grilling season that, is upon us. Yes, and I get it, and that gets me so excited because me I'm a too. provider. Yeah. I'm a provider. I'm a provider of good times. I'm a provider of sub- substance. I'm a provider of protein. I'm a provider of entertainment. I'm a provider of confidence. I'm gonna. That. I'm going to ingrain that in every single person that lets me open my mouth or present anything in front of them. And if I'm not yep. doing that, then you can walk away and go, that dude is the most biggest. He's a hypocrite. That son of a bitch doesn't know how to cook. Come to my house and let you see. I'm not saying I'm the best. 
But you know what? I got the confidence to cook but for I'm anybody because yeah. I love it. I love being a provider. I love being yeah. unorthodox and out of the box and not following along with the Joneses and not listening to the hype or believing the hype about you've got to be this way. You got to cook this certain way. Yes, we do promote certain brands, but you can become a provider over a little $4 grill with some rocks around a campfire Dude. and cook chucker birds that Absolutely. will make you slap your mom. In the same way that you can, t you can go out there with your dad's rifle from the fifties and denim jeans and a flannel and bring a deer off the mountain you can cook good ass food with almost nothing i know that you you represent traeger and and uh, honestly some of the best cuts i've ever had in my whole life came off a of traeger grill uh or a or a, a pellet smoker style grill and um you know i've 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 obviously that's great but you can you can take pride in in what you eat and what you're going to put in your body Anywhere. Anywhere. Like you said, some, some of my favorites, maybe not the best tasting. If I was to like put them on a plate right next to each other, one that came off the trigger and one that came off the campfire right out there in the, in the field after we shot it that day. Uh, I'm going to choose the one that we shot that day because that's part of the experience. Hell yeah. But, um, you were asking me earlier about the depression side of like, what's the, the biggest struggle for this injury? And for me, it comes down to the fact that I had all these bow hunts lined oh, up that shit. I just have to sit on the sidelines and not go on. I was supposed to, I was supposed to wrap up Audi nines and do a couple days of film. And then, and I was actually going to go bow hunt for, um, Mouflon in, in France. That one's out. Obviously, you know, sitting in the hospital, I can't be out there chasing Mouflon with a, with my bow. And then I was going to come back here and do some Northern California pig hunting. That's out. So the provider in me is, is really frustrated right now. So is there anything that I can do as a, as a, a ally in this, a, uh, a fellow provider that could help relieve some of this tension and anxiety? Can Absolutely. I give you, can I give you some meat? Because here's how I am. I'm not stingy with my meat and I won't be around people that are yeah. now. I will say that I have a lot of different mentality. I have a lot different mentality about the laws of, 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 limits and possession limits. And I understand why they're there, but I question a lot of it because I want to be able to eat my meat when I want to eat my meat with who I want to eat my meat with, how I'm going to eat that meat. And that's, that's the, that's the number one thing to me in possession limits is like, there's a lot of laws wrapped around me giving you wild game. Okay. You mm -hmm. got to make sure the process, the processor rate, the tags on it, all of the licensing and all that stuff. There are laws. There's ways around it. I get that. But I'm sitting here telling you in a public forum that I want to give you wild game meat. And that's part of becoming a provider because we're not going to sit here for the next 72 hours together and cook all this meat. I want you to be able to take it home knowing that you can't go out and kill that boar or go and kill that mouflon or go and kill that axis in Texas, whether it's high fence or whether it's in fair chase, it doesn't matter as long as you're doing it ethically and doing it right. A lot of Texas is high fence. There's a lot of arguments based around that. Mm. All I'm saying is that I want to be able to help a bro out and say, Hey dude, look at what I just got. I just got off the Sacramento river and we hammered the striper. My buddy Rocky gave me some speckle belly geese. And if the feds hear him say that I'm, I'm clear. I already looked at it because I'm not going to take a chance. I'm not ignorant to mm -hmm. the law, but I want to be able to say, David, 
I know that you might run low because you're not doing it. And I know that you got plenty of other bros in the provider's mentality that are going to hook you up, but that's what hunters do. Yeah, and that's why community. those, that's why those dinners in my backyard over the next 120 days with the meat in that freezer are so important to me. And I don't take one second of it for granted. Yep. I'm so anal about opening that grill and making sure that the pellets are right mm -hmm. and making sure that the smoke's right and making sure that the flavor's right. And I, and you know, I'm probably too much into like, Hey man, is it good? I want people to understand that that is a freaking wild duck that was harvested in Arkansas. And now we are doing this with it. Yep. You're welcome. And that's the biggest thing to me is my, being my being favorite provided. thing. My, sorry to interrupt. My, You're not interrupting. My favorite thing, yeah, I, I, I always tell people I'm a, I'm a hunting evangelist because uh, my wife, when, I, when, I, when we first started dating, was a vegetarian. And, um, you know, we, we got into a conversation about that and it came down to, you know, she's like, well, I have some moral, some moral things that I don't feel like the animals we eat are being treated very well. And I said, well, I kind of agree with that. What about if I cooked something that I shot ethically for you? That was, this was way back in, you know, many years ago. And she, uh, she said, yeah, I'd eat that. And so I got to go through this process with my wife. This is obviously the easiest example is my wife. Uh, the process of her going from vegetarian all the way up to having shot her own, her first deer herself and killer. Awesome. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, and usually it starts with food. You have to feed somebody game meat because there's this stigma about, oh yeah, it's game meat. It tastes gamey. It's like, that's, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's just not, if you didn't cook it right, it's Which just it like can, anything or, else. Or take care of the meat right off, you know, or when you kill it. Or care for it right, whatever. It's, so I, I call myself a hunting evangelist in the same way I think you're a hunting evangelist because uh, what we do is we provide the food for people and they realize not only how good does it taste, but how does it make me feel? Yeah. I feel better for having eaten that wow, maybe there's something to that. And then you Are say, you talking physically or just mentally and emotionally? Both. All of it, right? Yeah, all of it. And then, so, so you take somebody who's never hunted in their life, they've never even thought about hunting before, and you put a cutlet of elk backstrap in front of them, and they're, they can't not enjoy it. They're, they're either not human or they can't. They, they have to enjoy that, uh, in my personal opinion. But, um, and then, so then that opens up a conversation and they say, well, oh, you shot this yourself? What's Curiosity. that like? How is that? And my answer to that is always, come see. Come see for yourself. And you take, I mean, it, it, it does take a little bit. It, I'm, we're talking, we talked about selfishness earlier. It takes a little bit away from the hunt to have to be, to have to be bringing newcomers into it. It's hard. It's not easy to, to bring a newcomer. It's in. needed, but they it's very difficult. They don't know how to do it. So they're going to blow things up. They're going to, they're going to stand on the skyline and blow the deer out of the, out of the basin. They're going to do things that wrong the same way you did when you were learning, but that's super important. And, uh, so I always try to do at least one hunt a year where I take somebody out that's never hunted before, because that's important to me because I, I'm lucky enough to have grown up with a dad who wanted to take me hunting. But not everybody does. No. And if we don't, if we don't recruit some people into this game, um, and and recruit some more co future conservationists, then the, like you said, it could end tomorrow. We, and almost, we, I'd say ninety nine percent of my stories in that realm that you're talking about are success stories. Yeah. They same. try it once. Oh my God, shooting a gun is cool. It's so yep. fun. It's so nice to do this. It makes, and, and, and then, you know, you start doing a little bit more hundred yards and they're like, I'm in, I want to go again. And then pistols, I'm in. And then you take them out hunting and they, and they're like, 
this is it. This is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Dude, I'm telling you, I've changed. I've taken bleeding heart liberals that you would never think. And I'm not saying the Democrat and a liberal and all that can't hunt. I'm talking people that would never, ever support the hunting lifestyle and open their mind for a little bit and came in the duck blind and said, I'm hooked and yep. went home. And when started, can we do this went, next? Started buying gear and blowing me up. And it's happening right now. I'm yep. telling you, I got instances right now where it's happening, where people are already planning their falls when a year ago, they didn't even know what a rice field was or, or duck blind or anything. Yep. And they're into it. And I'm saying 99% of the stories are successes. It's just, you got to open, just got to open people's just, eyes. It's uh, ignorance. Open people, yeah. It's hundred percent. People who hate hunting are ignorant. I, I would say. And, um, there are some bad examples of hunters in the same way there's bad examples of liberals. Yep, you can't do that. You, you can't be that guy. Yeah. You, you so I, I in, that's why I said that it was sense, a privilege. We yep. cannot mess with this privilege. We have to take, we have to take responsibility for that. It's personal responsibility. It's, it's collective responsibility. We have to, we have to communicate as best we can. That's why, um, that's why I, that's why I take the, the extra step of bringing a camera along when I go hunt is cause I, have a platform. I'm a professional athlete, two-time Olympic gold medalist. That's a platform. Huge platform. And so huge and people huge, ask me, people ask me all the time. People ask me all the time, why do you even bother? Like isn't hunting kind of a touchy space to go into? And as a professional athlete, as an Olympian, it is. Hell yeah. It it's is. I've lost sponsors. I'll I'll be completely honest. I've lost sponsors over the fact that I choose to shoot. And I bet you meat. said good riddance. And I said, yeah, walk, yeah, keep on walking. See ya. Yeah, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Yep. Um, because I, I truly believe in it the, to to the to the absolute core of me. I believe in hunting. Um, so that's but that's I was saying that's part of why I, I choose to take a camera along is because I want to show people what hunting is through whatever means I can, and uh, obviously the best means possible is taking somebody out in person. The reality is I only have time to do that once or twice a year. That's enough. But that's good. That's good. If that I can take the cameras along, same way with you, you bring the cameras into the duck blind. If I can take it, take the cameras along and show people how to ethically responsibly hunt and show them the landscape and what is so exciting and good about this, uh, maybe I can change a few people's opinions along the way. That's why I take the responsibility. I, love, I mean, it's, it's, it's an so- added complication, man. Having a camera, especially bow hunting, trying to film a bow hunt is the hardest thing in the world, man. I've lost some, I've lost some big old critters uh, to the camera, but I think it's worth it. It's a risk worth it because it, because it potentially, you know, the recruitment, getting people to, and whether I recruit them to be hunters or just to be okay with hunting. I feel like is the same accomplishment. The goal is accomplished one way or the other. If I turn a liberal who hates hunting and wants us all to have our guns confiscated, guns and bows and knives confiscated, and I can show them actually some people should have guns because they're responsible with them, I've done my my job. If I can take somebody from a complete vegetarian or somebody who doesn't believe in hunting at all because they think that we're out there just killing bam because we, we love the, the murder, the killing lust. Um, and I can take them from that to realizing, oh, wow, these guys actually really respect these animals and they, they care about the animals more than I do. Uh, and I can convert their, them into actual hunters. I can take them out for their first hunt and have them, have them harvest something, have, have them harvest something and then uh, show them how to cook it right. And then they can cook it for somebody else. Now, what are, Man, they, what are, they, at, what are they becoming? A be- provider. Yeah. They're, they're becoming providers. a provider. There's and, not a better way to live, dude. such a healthy lifestyle. You cannot, argue, there's nobody in this world. I don't care if you've got an IQ of 183, you're not going to argue me that there's a better lifestyle. There's just not. Listen nope. to this. This along the lines, this kid, this, this fan writes in on, on, on the Instagram deal that I was sent yesterday. Hey, 
I just started listening to your podcast. After listening to the first couple, it gives me a whole new view on hunting and conservation. I'm only 17 years old and was wondering if you had any advice on how to give back to wildlife and the hunting society. I live in South Dakota and I'm very lucky because I grew up in a hunting family. But now that I am getting older, 17, 17. How, this kid's got a good head Ripe on his shoulders. Old age, yeah. But now that I'm getting older, I've started taking friends and younger kids that it's their first time and I could really care less about the amount of birds. It's the look on their face that makes me want to get younger kids into it. If you had any advice, Chad, it would be greatly appreciated. That's like, like this, those are, those are the messages that I get nonstop about the people. What I'm not saying that we're persuading them. I'm just saying that we're getting, we have a platform. My point in reading you that is that if we have the ability to take cameras in there and stay safe and ethical and spread the good word, not saying that we're talking about this is another religion, but it's spiritual being in the mountains and totally. it's very spiritual being in duck blind. If we can spread the good word and have the ability to do it right and can afford to do it right, because it is, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. freaking thing to know. It's hard. Yeah, it's it difficult. Comes at a cost. It puts a whole huge cost and it, it puts a whole new aspect on hunting when you're like, oh, I got cameras here. I got to do this right. Yeah. I, and it's not that we just do it right for the camera and then turn them off and then do it bad. I want to make sure when I say do it right, I mean, I want that viewer to be so engaged that they're there. Yep. And that is how you get people to be like, I've never duck hunted. I went fishing well, once. Maybe I'd I'm like going to go duck hunt. Yeah. It just takes, hopefully they watch one show totally. or hear one podcast and they hear a two-time gold medalist, a four-time X game gold medalist, a seven-time World Cup Grand Prix winners uh, champion say, everything comes at a cost and I'm a hunter. And I've turned sponsors away or lost sponsors and said, good riddance. That is a strong, strong platform to be able to do that. And the hunting community is lucky to have David Weiss. And we're going to wrap it up right there, David. I know you have a lot to say. I want to do this again because now I want to get together and I want to talk about some recipes. I want to talk about the summer, what we're going to do together. If I can help out in any way with the meat, I know you got a lot of friends. I know you got a lot of people (laughs) that'll help, but I got good stuff. I got widgeon, fully plucked widgeon. I got, I mean, I take care of the shit. My friend Rocky Merlo, he takes care of the stuff. I'm talking like we are providers. We do not abuse it. We are not entitled to it. We are privileged. We are blessed to do it. In no way, shape, or form will I ever have the attitude, gosh damn migration slow. I'm mad at him now, so I'm going to go shoot way more than I'm allowed. I'm not ever going to be that guy, and neither should you, and I'm not preaching. I'm just saying, don't be that guy. Do it right. And take care of the animals. They'll take care of us with these bounties that we get to enjoy with our friends and family. And again, when I open that freezer and see it, this whole aura comes over me like, this is what I was put on earth to do. I I wasn't put, my daughter is going to be raised on wild game. And when she runs into that kitchen and runs up to Dave Stanley and goes, Uncle Dave, I need more duck. I look at her and go, Oh my God, I think I'm going to cry. Amen. (laughs) My son last night, or actually it was just this morning. Perfect, perfect timing. Uh, I was, I was downstairs, uh, reading and my wife was upstairs cooking breakfast and my son was said, mommy, is there anything in the world better than this sausage right here? It was a deer sausage. (laughs) He literally, I mean, he's four years old. Things like that just come, they just come into his head. He wasn't, he wasn't thinking about a philosophical statement or anything. He was like, there's nothing better in the world than this sausage right here. I was like, yeah, great. It's, It's deer. Yeah. And it's, you know, he might've said the same thing about Jimmy Dean's, but that's not the point. But, the yeah. point is, is that his dad killed that, butchered it and processed it. Yep. And there, or, there's nothing, there's nothing better. So David Wise, 
He is the man. We are wishing you a strong recovery, a Thanks, quick sir. recovery. Let's get through this. Let's go grab a little bite to eat. Guys, please support the partners and sponsors that support us. You heard me at the beginning, but North American Whitetail Championships, NAWTC.com, Jargon Duck Calls, Elk Ridge Knives, Carbon Express Arrows, and Gator Coolers. They uh, support the podcast. There's several others that do, but today's episode with Mr. David Wise on Instagram, Mr. Mr. David, D-A-V-I-D, Wise, W-I-S-E. So go follow him. Look at some of his videos, his pictures. Get him on YouTube at the same. Yep. Mr. David Wise on YouTube. Go support his YouTube channel. Become a subscriber. And look at his lifestyle. He's got it going on at 29 years old. The accomplishments are abundant, but that's not what he's driven by. And that's what I love about the cat. So support our partners, support David, go follow him. And uh, hopefully he gets well quick and he can get on some of these hunts before it's too late in the season. Hopefully by fall, at least before he starts a heavy ski schedule. Tom Rashashin, please play that song by Leith Lofton, written by Leith Lofton and Mr. Drake White. What you going to do when the money's all gone? David Wise, thank you very much. Thank brother. you man thank you all everybody appreciate you we'll see you next week with another awesome episode coming up next is cam zinc the i guess you would just call him the mountain biker extraordinaire is that what you would call him crazy bastard what would you call cam he's just as crazy as you yeah i would call him the uh the sensei of the mountain bike. The sensei the, the, of the mountain the, bike. I like the, that. I like your free, hunting. Free ride mountain bike. I like your hunting evangelist sensei. too. That's a cool little deal. The free riding mountain bike sensei, Cam Zink, is up next. We'll be back soon, guys. Thank you so much for your support of this Life Ain't For Everybody podcast. Tom, again, sorry for the delay. Please play. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Life on earth won't last that long. What you going to do when the money's all gone? Say life on earth won't last that long What you gonna do when the money's all gone